Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ...for operations in salt marshes. In dry, level country, take up an easily accessible position with rising ground to your right and on your rear, so that the danger may be in front and safety lie behind. So much for campaigning in flat country. These are the four useful branches of military knowledge which enabled the Yellow Emperor to vanquish four several sovereigns. All armies prefer high ground to low and sunny places to dark. If you are careful of your men and camp on hard ground, the army will be free from disease of every kind, and this will spell victory. When you come to a hill or a bank, occupy the sunny side with the slope on your right rear. Thus you will at once act for the benefit of your soldiers and utilize the natural advantages of the ground. When, in consequence of heavy rains up country, a river which you wish to ford is swollen and flecked with foam, you must wait until it subsides. Country in which there are precipitous cliffs with torrents running between, deep natural hollows, confined places, tangled thickets, quagmires, and crevasses should be left with all possible speed and not approached. While we keep away from such places, we should get the enemy to approach them. While we face them, we should let the enemy have them on his rear. If in the neighborhood of your camp there should be any hilly country, ponds surrounded by aquatic grass, hollow basins filled with reeds, or woods with thick undergrowth, they must be carefully routed out and searched, for these are places where men in ambush or insidious spies are likely to be lurking. When the enemy is close at hand and remains quiet, he is relying on the natural strength of his position. When he keeps aloof and tries to provoke a battle, he is anxious for the other side to advance. If his place of encampment is easy of access, he is tendering a bait. Movement amongst the trees of a forest shows that the enemy is advancing. The appearance of a number of screens in the midst of thick grass means that the enemy wants to make us suspicious. The rising of birds in their flight is the sign of an ambuscade. Startled beasts indicate that a sudden attack is coming. When there is dust rising in a high column, it is the sign of chariots advancing. When the dust is low, but spread over a wide area, it betokens the approach of infantry. When it branches out in different directions, it shows that parties have been sent to collect firewood. A few clouds of dust moving to and fro signify that the army is encamping. Humble words and increased preparations are signs that the enemy is about to advance. Violent language and driving forward as if to the attack are signs that he will retreat. When the light chariots come out first and take up a position on the wings, it is a sign that the enemy is forming for battle. Peace proposals unaccompanied by a sworn covenant indicate a plot. When there is much running about and the soldiers fall into rank, it means that the critical moment has come. When some are seen advancing and some retreating, it is a lure. 
When the soldiers stand leaning on their spears, they are faint from want of food. If those who are sent to draw water begin by drinking themselves, the army is suffering from thirst. If the enemy sees an advantage to be gained and makes no effort to secure it, the soldiers are exhausted. If birds gather on any spot, it is unoccupied. Clamor by night betokens nervousness. If there is a disturbance in the camp, the general's authority is weak. If the banners and flags are shifted about, sedition is afoot. If the officers are angry, it means that the men are weary. When an army feeds its horses with grain and kills its cattle for food, and when the men do not hang their cooking pots over the campfires, showing that they will not return to their tents, you may know that they are determined to fight to the death. The sight of men whispering together in small knots or speaking in subdued tones points to disaffection amongst the rank and file. Too frequent rewards signify that the enemy is at the end of his resources. Too many punishments betray a condition of dire distress. To begin by bluster, but afterwards to take fright at the enemy's numbers, shows a supreme lack of intelligence. When envoys are sent with compliments in their mouths, it is a sign that the enemy wishes for a truce. If the enemy's troops march up angrily and remain facing ours for a long time without either joining battle or taking themselves off again, the situation is one that demands great vigilance and circumspection. If our troops are no more in number than the enemy, that is amply sufficient. It only means that no direct attack can be made. What we can do is simply to concentrate all our available strength, keep a close watch on the enemy, and obtain reinforcements. He who exercises no forethought, but makes light of his opponents, is sure to be captured by them. If soldiers are punished before they have grown attached to you, they will not prove submissive. And, unless submissive, they will be practically useless. If, when the soldiers have become attached to you, punishments are not enforced, they will still be useless. Therefore, soldiers must be treated in the first instance with humanity, but kept under control by means of iron discipline. This is a certain road to victory. If in training soldiers commands are habitually enforced, the army will be well disciplined. If not, its discipline will be bad. If a general shows confidence in his men, but always insists on his orders being obeyed, the gain will be mutual. End of Part 9 Part 10 Terrain Sun Tzu said, We may distinguish six kinds of terrain, to wit, one, accessible ground, two, entangling ground, three, temporizing ground, four, narrow passes, five, precipitous heights, six, positions at a great distance from the enemy. Ground which can be freely traversed by both sides is called accessible. With regard to ground of this nature, be before the enemy in occupying the raised and sunny spots, and carefully guard your line of supplies. Then you will be able to fight with advantage. Ground which can be abandoned but is hard to reoccupy is called entangling. From a position of this sort, if the enemy is unprepared, you may sally forth and defeat him. But if the enemy is prepared for your coming and you fail to defeat him, then, return being impossible, disaster will ensue. 
When the position is such that neither side will gain by making the first move, it is called temporizing ground. In a position of this sort, even though the enemy should offer us an attractive bait, it will be advisable not to stir forth, but rather to retreat, thus enticing the enemy in his turn. Then, when part of his army has come out, we may deliver our attack with advantage. With regard to narrow passes, if you can occupy them first, let them be strongly garrisoned and await the advent of the enemy. Should the army forestall you in occupying a pass, do not go after him if the pass is fully garrisoned, but only if it is weakly garrisoned. With regard to precipitous heights, if you are beforehand with your adversary, you should occupy the raised and sunny spots and there wait for him to come up. If the enemy has occupied them before you, do not follow him, but retreat and try to entice him away. If you are situated at a great distance from the enemy and the strength of the two armies is equal, it is not easy to provoke a battle and fighting will be to your disadvantage. These six are the principles connected with earth. The general who's attained a responsible post must be careful to study them. Now, an army is exposed to six several calamities, not arising from natural causes, but from faults for which the general is responsible. These are, one, flight, two, insubordination, three, collapse, four, ruin, five, disorganization, six, rout. Other conditions being equal, if one force is hurled against another ten times its size, the result will be the flight of the former. When the common soldiers are too strong and their officers too weak, the result is insubordination. When the officers are too strong and the common soldiers too weak, the result is collapse. When the higher officers are angry and insubordinate and on meeting the enemy give battle on their own account from a feeling of resentment, before the commander-in-chief can tell whether or not he is in a position to fight, the result is ruin. When the general is weak and without authority, when his orders are not clear and distinct, when there are no fixed duties assigned to officers and men, and the ranks are formed in a slovenly, haphazard manner, the result is utter disorganization. When a general, unable to estimate the enemy's strength, allows an inferior force to engage a larger one, or hurls a weak detachment against a powerful one, and neglects to place picked soldiers in the front rank, the result must be rout. These are six ways of courting defeat, which must be carefully noted by the general who has attained a responsible post. The natural formation of the country is the soldier's best ally, but a power of estimating the adversary, of controlling the forces of victory, and of shrewdly calculating difficulties, dangers, and distances, constitutes the test of a great general. He who knows these things, and in fighting puts his knowledge into practice, will win his battles. He who knows them not, nor practices them, will surely be defeated. If fighting is sure to result in victory, then you must fight, even though the ruler forbid it. If fighting will not result in victory, then you must not fight, even at the ruler's bidding. The general who advances without coveting fame and retreats without fearing disgrace, whose only thought is to protect his country and do good service for his sovereign, is the jewel of the kingdom. 
Regard your soldiers as your children, and they will follow you into the deepest valleys. Look upon them as your own beloved sons, and they will stand by you even unto death. If, however, you are indulgent, but unable to make your authority felt, kind-hearted, but unable to enforce your commands, and incapable, moreover, of quelling disorder, then your soldiers must be likened to spoilt children. They are useless for any practical purpose. If we know that our own men are in a condition to attack, but are unaware that the enemy is not open to attack, we have gone only halfway towards victory. If we know that the enemy is open to attack, but are unaware that our own men are not in a condition to attack, we have gone only halfway towards victory. If we know that the enemy is open to attack, and also know that our men are in a condition to attack, but are unaware that the nature of the ground makes fighting impracticable, we have still only gone halfway towards victory. Hence the experienced soldier, once in motion, is never bewildered. Once he has broken camp, he is never at a loss. Hence the saying, If you know the enemy and know yourself, your victory will not stand in doubt. If you know heaven and know earth, you may make your victory complete. End of Part 10 Part 11 The Nine Situations Sun Tzu said, The art of war recognizes nine varieties of ground. 1. Dispersive ground 2. Facile ground 3. Contentious ground 4. Open ground 5. Ground of intersecting highways 6. Serious ground 7. Difficult ground 8. Hemmed-in ground 9. Desperate ground When a chieftain is fighting in his own territory, it is dispersive ground. When he is penetrated into hostile territory, but to no great distance, it is facile ground. Ground the possession of which imports great advantage to either side is contentious ground. Ground on which each side has liberty of movement is open ground. Ground which forms the key to three contiguous states so that he who occupies it first has most of the empire at his command is a ground of intersecting highways. When an army has penetrated into the heart of a hostile country, leaving a number of fortified cities in its rear, it is serious ground. Mountain forests, rugged steeps, marshes, and fens, all country that is hard to traverse, this is difficult ground. Ground which is reached through narrow gorges and from which we can only retire by tortuous paths so that a small number of the enemy would suffice to crush a large body of our men, this is hemmed-in ground. Ground on which we can only be saved from destruction by fighting without delay is desperate ground. On dispersive ground, therefore, fight not. On facile ground, halt not. On contentious ground, attack not. On open ground, do not try to block the enemy's way. On the ground of intersecting highways, join hands with your allies. On serious ground, gather and plunder. In difficult ground, keep steadily on the march. On hemmed-in ground, resort to stratagem. On desperate ground, fight. Those who were called skillful leaders of old 
knew how to drive a wedge between the enemy's front and rear, to prevent cooperation between his large and small divisions, to hinder the good troops from rescuing the bad, the officers from rallying their men. When the enemy's men were united, they managed to keep them in disorder. When it was to their advantage, they made a forward move. When otherwise, they stopped still. If asked how to cope with a great host of the enemy in orderly array and on the point of marching to the attack, I should say, begin by seizing something which your opponent holds dear. Then he will be amenable to your will. Rapidity is the essence of war. Take advantage of the enemy's unreadiness. Make your way by unexpected routes and attack unguarded spots. The following are the principles to be observed by an invading force. The further you penetrate into a country, the greater will be the solidarity of your troops, and thus the defenders will not prevail against you. Make forays in fertile country in order to supply your army with food. Carefully study the well-being of your men, and do not overtax them. Concentrate your energy and hoard your strength. Keep your army continually on the move, and devise unfathomable plans. Throw your soldiers into positions whence there is no escape, and they will prefer death to flight. If they will face death, there is nothing they may not achieve. Officers and men alike will put forth their uttermost strength. Soldiers, when in desperate straits, lose the sense of fear. If there is no place of refuge, they will stand firm. If they are in hostile country, they will show a stubborn front. If there is no help for it, they will fight hard. Thus, without waiting to be marshaled, the soldiers will be constantly on the qui vive. Without waiting to be asked, they will do your will. Without restrictions, they will be faithful. Without giving orders, they can be trusted. Prohibit the taking of omens and do away with superstitious doubts. Then, until death itself comes, no calamity need be feared. If our soldiers are not overburdened with money, it is not because they have a distaste for riches. If their lives are not unduly long, it is not because they are disinclined to longevity. On the day they are ordered out to battle, your soldiers may weep, those sitting up bedewing their garments, and those lying down, letting the tears run down their cheeks. But let them once be brought to bay, and they will display the courage of a chu or a kui. The skillful tactician may be likened to the Shuai-jan. Now, the Shuai-jan is a snake that is found in the Chiung Mountains. Strike at its head, and you will be attacked by its tail. Strike at its tail, and you will be attacked by its head. Strike at the middle, and you will be attacked by head and tail both. Asked if an army can be made to imitate the Shuai-jan, I should answer, yes. For the men of Wu and the men of Yue are enemies. Yet if they are crossing a river in the same boat and are caught by a storm, they will come to each other's assistance, just as the left hand helps the right. Hence, it is not enough to put one's trust in the tethering of horses and the burying of chariot wheels in the ground. The principle on which to manage an army is to set up one standard of courage, which all must reach. How to make the best of both strong and weak, that is a question involving the proper use of ground. Thus, the skillful general conducts his army just as though he were leading a single man, willy-nilly, by the hand. 
It is the business of a general to be quiet and thus ensure secrecy, upright and just, and thus maintain order. He must be able to mystify his officers and men by false reports and appearances, and thus keep them in total ignorance. By altering his arrangements and changing his plans, he keeps the enemy without definite knowledge. By shifting his camp and taking circuitous routes, he prevents the enemy from anticipating his purpose. At the critical moment, the leader of an army acts like one who has climbed up a height and then kicks away the ladder behind him. He carries his men deep into hostile territory before he shows his hand. He burns his boats and breaks his cooking pots. Like a shepherd driving a flock of sheep, he drives his men this way and that, and nothing knows whither he is going. To muster his host and bring it into danger, this may be termed the business of the general. The different measures suited to the nine varieties of ground, the expediency of aggressive or defensive tactics, and the fundamental laws of human nature, these are things that must most certainly be studied. When invading hostile territory, the general principle is that penetrating deeply brings cohesion. Penetrating but a short way means dispersion. When you leave your own country behind and take your army across neighborhood territory, you find yourself on critical ground. When there are means of communication on all four sides, the ground is one of intersecting highways. When you penetrate deeply into a country, it is serious ground. When you penetrate but a little way, it is facile ground. When you have the enemy's strongholds on your rear and narrow passes in front, it is hemmed in ground. When there is no place of refuge at all, it is desperate ground. Therefore, on dispersive ground, I would inspire my men with unity of purpose. On facile ground, I would see that there is close connection between all parts of my army. On contentious ground, I would hurry up my rear. On open ground, I would keep a vigilant eye on my defenses. On ground of intersecting highways, I would consolidate my alliances. On serious ground, I would try to ensure a continuous stream of supplies. On difficult ground, I would keep pushing on along the road. On hemmed-in ground, I would block any way of retreat. On desperate ground, I would proclaim to my soldiers the hopelessness of saving their lives. For it is the soldier's disposition to offer an obstinate resistance when surrounded, to fight hard when he cannot help himself, and to obey promptly when he has fallen into danger. We cannot enter into alliance with neighboring princes until we are acquainted with their designs. We are not fit to lead an army on the march unless we are familiar with the face of the country, its mountains and forests, its pitfalls and precipices, its marshes and swamps. We shall be unable to turn natural advantages to account unless we make use of local guides. To be ignored of any one of the following four or five principles does not befit a warlike prince. When a warlike prince attacks a powerful state, his generalship shows itself in preventing the concentration of the enemy's forces. He overawes his opponents, and their allies are prevented from joining against him. Hence, he does not strive to ally himself with all and sundry, nor does he foster the power of other states. He carries out his own secret designs, keeping his antagonists in awe.
Thus he is able to capture their cities and overthrow their kingdoms. Bestow rewards without regard to rule. Issue orders without regard to previous arrangements, and you will be able to handle a whole army as though you had to do with but a single man. Confront your soldiers with the deed itself. Never let them know your design. When the outlook is bright, bring it before their eyes, but tell them nothing when the situation is gloomy. Place your army in deadly peril and it will survive. Plunge it into desperate straits and it will come off in safety. For it is precisely when a force has fallen into harm's way that it is capable of striking a blow for victory. Success in warfare is gained by carefully accommodating ourselves to the enemy's purpose. By persistently hanging on the enemy's flank, we shall succeed in the long run in killing the commander-in-chief. This is called ability to accomplish a thing by sheer cunning. On the day that you take up your command, block the frontier passes, destroy the official tallies, and stop the passage of all emissaries. Be stern in the council chamber so that you may control the situation. If the enemy leaves the door open, you must rush in. Forestall your opponent by seizing what he holds dear and subtly contrive to time his arrival on the ground. Walk in the path defined by rule and accommodate yourself to the enemy until you can fight a decisive battle. At first, then, exhibit the coyness of a maiden until the enemy gives you an opening. Afterwards, emulate the rapidity of a running hare and it will be too late for the enemy to oppose you. End of Part 11 Part 12 The Attack by Fire Sun Tzu said, There are five ways of attacking with fire. The first is to burn soldiers in their camp. The second is to burn stores. The third is to burn baggage trains. The fourth is to burn arsenals and magazines. The fifth is to hurl dropping fire amongst the enemy. In order to carry out an attack, we must have means available. The material for raising fire should always be kept in readiness. There is a proper season for making attacks with fire and special days for starting a conflagration. The proper season is when the weather is very dry. The special days are those when the moon is in the constellations of the sieve, the wall, the wing, or the crossbar for these four are all days of rising wind. In attacking with fire, one should be prepared to meet five possible developments. 1. When fire breaks out inside to enemy's camp, respond at once with an attack from without. 2. If there is an outbreak of fire, but the enemy's soldiers remain quiet, bide your time and do not attack. 3. When the force of the flames has reached its height, Follow it up with an attack, if that is practicable. If not, stay where you are. 4. If it is possible to make an assault with fire from without, do not wait for it to break out within, but deliver your attack at a favorable moment. 5. When you start a fire, be to windward of it. Do not attack from the leeward. A wind that rises in the daytime lasts long, but a night breeze soon falls. In every army, the five developments connected with fire must be known, the movements of the stars calculated, and a watch kept for the proper days. 
Hence, those who use fire as an aid to the attack show intelligence. Those who use water as an aid to the attack gain an accession of strength. By means of water, an enemy may be intercepted, but not robbed of all his belongings. Unhappy is the fate of one who tries to win his battles and succeed in his attacks without cultivating the spirit of enterprise, for the result is a waste of time and general stagnation. Hence the saying, the enlightened ruler lays his plans well ahead. The good general cultivates his resources. Move not unless you see an advantage. Use not your troops unless there is something to be gained. Fight not unless the position is critical. No ruler should put troops into the field merely to gratify his own spleen. No general should fight a battle simply out of pique. If it is to your advantage, make a forward move. If not, stay where you are. Anger may in time change to gladness. Vexation may be succeeded by content. But a kingdom that has once been destroyed can never come again into being, nor can the dead ever be brought back to life. Hence the enlightened ruler is heedful and the good general full of caution. This is the way to keep a country at peace and an army intact. End of Part 12 Part 13 The Use of Spies Sun Tzu said, Raising a host of a hundred thousand men and marching them great distances entails heavy loss on the people and a drain on the resources of the state. The daily expenditure will amount to a thousand ounces of silver. There will be commotion at home and abroad, and men will drop down exhausted on the highways. As many as seven hundred thousand families will be impeded in their labor. Hostile armies may feast each other for years, striving for the victory which is decided in a single day. This being so, to remain in ignorance of the enemy's condition simply because one grudges the outlay of a hundred ounces of silver in honors and emoluments is the height of inhumanity. One who acts thus is no leader of men, no present help to his sovereign, no master of victory. Thus, what enables the wise sovereign and the good general to strike and conquer and achieve things beyond the reach of ordinary men is foreknowledge. Now, this foreknowledge cannot be elicited from spirits. It cannot be obtained inductively from experience, nor by any deductive calculation. Knowledge of the enemy's dispositions can only be obtained from other men. Hence, the use of spies, of whom there are five classes, 1. Local spies, 2. Inward spies, 3. Converted spies, 4. Doomed spies, 5. Surviving spies. When these five kinds of spy are all at work, none can discover the secret system. This is called divine manipulation of the threads. It is the sovereign's most precious faculty. Having local spies means employing the services of the inhabitants of a district. Having inward spies, making use of officials of the enemy. Having converted spies, getting hold of the enemy's spies and using them for our own purposes. Having doomed spies, doing certain things openly for purposes of deception and allowing our spies to know of them and report them to the enemy. Surviving spies, finally, are those who bring back news from the enemy's camp. 
Hence it is that which none in the whole army are more intimate relations to be maintained than with spies. None should be more liberally rewarded, and no other business should greater secrecy be preserved. Spies cannot be usefully employed without a certain intuitive sagacity. They cannot be properly managed without benevolence and straightforwardness. Without subtle ingenuity of mind, one cannot make certain of the truth of their reports. Be subtle, be subtle, and use your spies for every kind of business. If a secret piece of news is divulged by a spy before the time is ripe, he must be put to death together with the man to whom the secret was told. Whether the object be to crush an army, to storm a city, or to assassinate an individual, it is always necessary to begin by finding out the names of the attendants, the aides-de-camp, and doorkeepers and sentries of the general in command. Our spies must be commissioned to ascertain these. The enemy's spies, who have come to spy on us, must be sought out, tempted with bribes, led away, and comfortably housed. Thus they will become converted spies and available for our service. It is through the information brought by the converted spy that we are able to acquire and employ local and inward spies. It is owing to this information again that we can cause the doomed spy to carry false tidings to the enemy. Lastly, it is by this information that the surviving spy can be used on appointed occasions. The end and aim of spying in all its five varieties is knowledge of the enemy, and this knowledge can only be derived in the first instance from the converted spy. Hence it is essential that the converted spy be treated with the utmost liberality. Of old, the rise of the Yin dynasty was due to Yi Qi, who had served under the Xia. Likewise, the rise of the Chu dynasty was due to Lu Ya, who had served under the Yin. Hence, it is only the enlightened ruler and the wise general who will use the highest intelligence of the army for purposes of spying, and thereby they achieve great results. Spies are a most important element in water, because on them depends an army's ability to move. End of the Art of War How many people do you know these days with a neurological disorder? How many family members or people in your circle of friends have something like fibromyalgia or lupus? How about a brain tumor? Studies in the New England Journal of Medicine show a growing trend in the rate of such disorders in recent years. Perhaps like me, you've never given the issue much thought. But in 2002, I could no longer ignore it. I also became a statistic when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It was the summer of the Great Fire in Tucson, Arizona, when I began my research and traveled across this country to find the truth. Yeah, you know, the technology we have in looking at the brain has changed rather dramatically. Now, the increase in brain tumors has nothing to do with our ability to see these things, because that's been looked at. And the studies have shown that it's a real increase in brain tumors. It has nothing to do with our improvements in technology. 
The National Cancer Institute recorded an impressive increase in incident rates of primary brain cancer since 1985 and possibly as early as 1984. Dr. H.J. Roberts, director for the Palm Beach Institute for Medical Research, found this trend particularly disturbing. At a time when this trend was singularly attributed to more innovative scanning and diagnostic procedures, Roberts noticed a series of conflicting themes. First, Adequate brain scanning devices were widely available for at least 10 years prior to this report. Second, there were simply more people affected with brain cancer. They had nothing to do with the change in the way they were diagnosed or a different way of classifying the disease. Third, between 1983 and 1987, incidents of other forms of cancer outside the brain remained the same and in some cases declined. So why the vast increase in brain cancer and brain disorders since 1984? I'll refer to a published study by foremost neuroscientist, Dr. John Olney. He suggests one likely candidate. In 1983, the U.S. population began ingesting significant quantities of a substance never before used for human consumption. Artificial sweetener aspartame was quickly introduced to consumers. In 1984, 6,900,000 pounds of aspartame was consumed by Americans. This rate doubles by the next year and continues to climb into the 90s. When it was fully marketed for pop and everything by uh, July to August of 1983, six months later by 1984, the brain tumor rate had already jumped 10% in the United States. The diabetes rate had jumped 30% and the incidence of brain lymphoma, a very aggressive and unusual type of brain tumor, jumped 60%. The uh, enormity of the problem is indicated by the fact that by 1988 in its own publication 80% of complaints about food and additives that were volunteered to the FDA. And again, it didn't have to be submitted, had to deal with aspartame products over 80%. You know, when you see these people uh, who say, well, you know, I take uh, MSG or NutraSweet, it doesn't seem to bother me at all, uh, they're more resistant to the obvious toxic effects, but they're still getting very subtle toxic effects that over many years is going to uh, produce obvious uh, disease in those persons. Some persons can be exposed for the first time and break up with a rash, have a terrible headache, or so they presumably have never been exposed to it before. Um, <clears throat> but on the other hand, people who've taken it over the long term and exposing the body to uh, large doses of the components of aspartame, that's uh, in the realm of toxicity. And again, it, it's this variability in your sensitivity to toxins. Some people may notice very little, if anything. A majority of people will have one of a number of symptoms because we know that the aspartame, because it is a poison that affects protein synthesis, because it affects the, how the synapse operates in the brain, and because it affects DNA, can affect numerous organs. So you can get a lot of different symptoms that seem unconnected. 
But in looking at the list of symptoms submitted to the FDA, most of them are neurological or in some way connected to the nervous system. Uh, so the nervous system seems to be one of the areas that's most affected. So we see people have difficulty thinking. Uh, they feel like they're walking around in a cloud or a fog. It's a subchronic level. It's not like you go out and you drink a bottle of methanol and you have this acute reaction to it. Uh, what, we're ha what we're seeing over a period of time is this slow accumulation of toxins within the body that, have, that start to disrupt the, the, um, the normal activity of the brain and the endocrine system, which is controlled by the, by the brain itself. That really the, the sort of um, symptoms one can get are pretty protean. All types of symptoms can occur with, with aspartame. I mean, it clearly, you see, you need to look at the chemistry a little bit. I don't want to get too technical, but it clearly has an impact on what are called biogenic amines. These are, uh, well, neurotransmitters in the brain, norepinephrine, so on. We know, we've known for a long time, that when you take in a lot of aspartame in conjunction with carbohydrates, you will decrease the availability of uh, L-tryptophan, which is the building block for serotonin. There's been a lot of media attention recently to serotonin, a very, very important neurotransmitter, important in mood regulation and a, and a variety of functions. Uh, aspartame is uh, an artificial sweetener, an additive, and it's a chemical. It's not a natural product. It's a chemical. The molecule is made up of three components. Two are amino acids, the so-called building blocks of protein. One is called phenylalanine, which is about 50% of the molecule. And the other is aspartic acid, which is like 40%. The other 10% is a so-called methyl ester, which is because it's swallowed, becomes free methyl alcohol, methanol, wood alcohol, which is a poison, a real poison. It really began with a patient. I had a patient whom I had treated for a number of years for a recurrent depression. She came into the hospital in what we call a manic state. That is, she was very, very speeded up, euphoric on top of the world. I'd never seen her manic before, never looked upon her as bipolar. And within a day or two of her admission to the hospital, she had a sudden grand mal seizure, epileptic-like seizure. This is in a woman who had no history of seizure disorder. I really could not explain either the sudden onset of mania in somebody who had been on antidepressants for years, usually in a bipolar patient, that is, in a manic depressive patient. An antidepressant will trigger a manic episode. She'd been on, ma on uh, antidepressants for a long time, no manic episode, suddenly was manic and then had a grand mal seizure. Clinically, I could not explain that, so we essentially did some detective work looking at what was different in this woman's life. And the only thing we could find was that she had made a decision to lose some weight. So she switched from iced tea sweetened with sugar to uh, iced tea sweetened with aspartame. And she was drinking fairly large amounts of it. Now, you could, you could speculate that perhaps the caffeine in the tea may have been a factor, but she had not changed the total quantity. She'd had this amount of iced tea for many years without manic episodes without grand mal seizures. What was different was the aspartame. So I started looking at that, and it made sense 
that aspartame would lower the seizure threshold, that is what we knew about the chemistry of aspartame at that point in time, did point to the possibility that aspartame could one, trigger a manic episode, and two, could lower the seizure threshold sufficiently for her to have a grand mal seizure. That was the beginning. And I found other patients like that. I wrote about it. And that was in uh, 1985, really two years or so after the introduction of aspartame into the market. Uh, I realized that something was going awry, but I couldn't quite figure it out. And then after several years putting amalgamating this experience and patient input, and it's very important that you listen to your patients because the great Dr. Osler said, listen to the patient. They're telling you what's wrong. I realized that the common denominator was the use of uh, aspartame products. And under various trade names, particularly NutraSweet, Equal, Crystallite, and so forth. I was primarily using NutraSweet, lots of it, because I was a big coffee drinker. It was decaffeinated. I was taking care of myself. I mean, there was just all kinds of things that, you know, the diet sodas, the, you know, I used to eat Jello all the time, you know, Cool Whip and gum. I used to, you know, eat chew gum constantly back then. Um, Came home and decided I was going to be the good diabetic. I needed to be here for my child. Um, I was going to drink the diet drink like crazy. I drank crystallite tea. I switched from brewing my own tea to crystallite tea. And so for years, I went on thinking what a smart person I am drinking Diet Coke instead of regular Coke. And, and, and also, I carried it into other things as well, so that when I would sweeten my tea, I sweetened it with, uh, with equal. And so when the uh, low-cal Kool-Aid hit the market uh, in, I think it was April of 1983, I started using it. I would have a drink with a Diet Coke. During the day, I would drink Diet Coke or, co or coffee, decaffeinated, all day long. I was never without one or the other. I drove 10 states. I always had a thermos of coffee with me, very liberally treated with NutraSweet. I started out for doing blood draws, and um, I, I did the blood draws. I like talking and everything, and so that was a good area for me to get into. I was always hyper and all that, and I would drink the diet sodas like crazy there because we had it at our disposal all the time. And so the further and further I got on, and then um, I did the Armed Forces Emergency Ser Services with the disaster. We work with um, people overseas during war wartime. I grew up in a funeral home in one of the oldest homes in the South. Um, I didn't meet my husband until I was like 35, 36. And um, we went on to have a child. And my weight just went way out of... And in the meantime, I had lost an eye in 87. I didn't meet him until 98. And um, I was told in 92 I had diabetes. Well, I tried staying off the sweets and the Coca-Cola and, you know, drinking the diet drinks on and off. And uh, I was a briefing attorney for a federal district judge, John H. Wood. The U.S. courthouse in San Antonio is named after him. And uh, then after serving as his briefing attorney for two years, I was appointed by 
Bill Sessions as Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Texas and uh, served in that capacity for a little bit over four years. And during that time, I was the president of the Federal Bar Association and very active in uh, legal matters and things like that. Had I seen the chemical formed on this product, I would never have touched it. You know, the, the poisonous effect of methyl alcohol and, and its methyl esters are, are well known. And uh, within a day or two of my starting to drink it, not only did I feel the deterioration in my body, where I couldn't swim anymore and I didn't have the balance that I had and I was short of breath from a heart failure type of problem, but my wife saw all this much more objectively than I did. And she was a nurse and she said, Jim, get off of this. This is killing you. It's destroying you. Well, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease back in 93 called lupus, SLE, systemic, which I had been dealing with. It was very severe to the point where I lost my job and eventually my insurance because over 40 doctors who saw me over a year's period kept doing one test after another. And every test came back negative. I've had some of them since 1983. I can go back to as far as 1983 and possibly even before that, but I only remember doctor's offices and, and you know, the um, hospitalizations and things like that since 1983. Around, I'd say, January of 2002, I started getting dizzy. I would go to the dryer to go take clothes out and fall down and not know why. The reason I found out I had a brain tumor is I lost my voice during pollen season of the year 2000, or 98, excuse me. And um, in 98, my voice never came back from the pollen hoarseness that happened to me every year. So I went to a specialist at a local hospital here in Atlanta, and I said, all my friends' voices have come back, mine's gotten worse. And he went down my throat, and he said, well, your left vocal cord is completely atrophied, and it's been my experience when I see a condition like this that there's a brain tumor someplace that causes that. Also, the vision um, having spots, and I and I couldn't see. And I, I I literally I stopped driving because I did not feel comfortable behind a wheel. My endocrinologist told me that I have most likely have multiple sclerosis, so he sent me to a neurologist. The neurologist told me that yes, I do have a multiple sclerosis. I had been having double vision, and my doctor scheduled me to have an MRI. And uh, we were waiting on the results, and I'll never forget it. It was, oh, maybe a week or two before Christmas. And uh, the doctor called, and I, I was just you know, ready to hear, well, you know, we couldn't find anything. Well, instead, he said, you have a brain tumor, and it's a rather large brain tumor. And within a couple of days... I had gone from being a two-mile-a-day swimmer to having such a toxic cardiomyopathy that I could hardly climb the stairs to my apartment. Over the next six weeks, I went through all of the personal hells of methyl alcohol poisoning and the neurotransmitter depletion uh, from the aspartame's phenylalanine content, and eventually ended up with a picture of Lou Gehrig disease. I still have a lot of pain, but she says, well, you'll live with pain. It's part of... Even though it's in the mission, you're going to have pain. So I went to Tampa, finally found a rheumatologist that she had referred me to, and 
Oddly enough, he did the same blood test and said, you never had lupus. You have advanced fibromyalgia. <laughs> I said, I just give up. So he said, well, I just don't think you ever had lupus. But for whatever reason, you're able to do what you're doing because of what she gave you. So let's just go ahead and treat you as if you're in remission. But I'm going to treat you for lupus, for fibromyalgia. But detail is very, very important. You have to get spellings name, birth dates name, everything. And with me being diagnosed with the neural hearing loss, which has gotten significantly worse with it, I've been um, checked the last three years every six months, and it's gotten, gotten a lot worse. And now I'm taking, I have the two hearing aids that I have to have. I took the ice pops out thinking they were just the regular ones that I had been eating earlier. And my mother-in-law had taken my little one over to her house. So my husband and I were in movies, and we were going to have a date night, you know, just night out, you know, night to ourselves. And I pulled out the pops and went on to eat the four, three, four of the pops, aspartame pops. Well, this was on a Saturday night. By 4 o'clock Sunday morning, I was digging holes in my hands from the itching. I was bleeding. I looked like something out of a Vietnam camp from the bleeding. The doctor explained that one of the very probable side results would be a loss of short-term memory. Well, uh, I later learned that it had done a little bit more than that with me uh, and that it ruined my legal career. About then I tumbled, but only subconsciously. I said, well, you know, I, I'm just going to get off this artificial sweetener, and I, I didn't really even uh, consciously suspect NutraSweet, but when I got off it, then I started recovering. My doctors will not come out and absolutely put down in writing that this is caused by aspartame. They will not do it. But they'll give me an aside like this, thank God you're off NutraSweet. That's what they'll say. But they won't put it in my records. We were doing a shelter, and I was there, and I had the, the um, water, and that's all I did was drink water. And it was like each bottle I drank, the worse I got. And I had nothing else um, to eat or anything. There was nothing, you know, nothing else that I was ingesting at all. So that was actually a blessing because I was able to narrow it down. There must be, this must be it. Um, and I went around and I had the bottle and I was asking everybody, what's in this bottle? What is aspartame? And, you know, everybody said they had no idea. Um, and then that one lady had uh, said, she goes, well, and she goes, I've heard of it, she said. And then something kept flashing my mind, and I remembered seeing the name somewhere. And, I, I, like I said, I read all the time in magazines and all that. And I don't know if it was in Time or Newsweek or something, but I remember seeing an article, and for some reason I keep saying that name. So uh, after I had uh, finished the shelter, I went, and I was driving down the road in my library. I volunteered at the library also. And so I stopped in there to say hello and all that and see how everything was going. And they actually had power there. And I went in. I pulled it up on a computer. At that time, I didn't have a computer. And I never searched anything in my life. I had no clue. I didn't have email, and that's about it. Um, and I pulled up aspartame. And I just, my eyes lit up. I started crying. I was all those symptoms are 92 symptoms. I think I think I counted 79 of those symptoms. I've been in the hospital or or to the doctors in complaints over 50 times for each one of them, well over. Turns out his wife was told she had lupus. She doesn't. They were getting ready to tell her she had multiple sclerosis, and she didn't. 
her husband went home and jumped all over her and made her stop drinking the diet drink. And all of a sudden, things got a lot better for her. Yep. That's basically how it happened with me, Corey. I put the diet drink down. And I didn't touch it again. This was on a Friday. I think it's around the 19th of September. Last year? Yeah. And my husband looked at me and he says, the next day, within 24 hours, he says, baby, you're not smart like you were. You're not falling out like you were either. And over time, it got better and got better and got better. Because I was such a high user of aspartame through primarily Diet Cokes and Equal and uh, those, are, those are the primary ways, combined with the mountain of evidence and, and other testimonials of people who have, have had uh, terrible symptoms of every type of malady that you can imagine. And when they're removed from the aspartame, the symptoms go away. That's what you call strong, if not direct evidence, very strong circumstantial evidence. Judge Wood, the judge I used to work for, the federal judge, <clears throat> uh, in his charge to the jury, when he would give a definition of circumstantial evidence, he would say, if, as you go to bed at night, there's no snow on the ground, and you wake up in the morning, and there's snow on the ground, you may reasonably assume that during the course of the night, it snowed. That is an example of circum strong circumstantial evidence. You didn't see it snow. You can't <laughs> scientifically prove that the snow fell from the sky but it wasn't there at night and in the morning it was therefore you may conclude circumstantially that it snowed during the course of the night and I would say that the evidence of, of, of my brain tumors being caused by aspartame are, are that strong to me and then they rechallenge themselves knowingly or inadvertently, they served something in a neighbor's house that they didn't realize contained an aspartame product. And these set of symptoms and problems promptly recur within hours or a day or two, sometimes within minutes, and it does so repeatedly. Then that is more than anecdotal. Uh, that is similar like the cock postulates for infection. Uh, you isolate the cause, and then you inject it in the animal, and you reproduce the problem. And many of these individuals who have been aspartame reactors have tested themselves 5, 10, 20 times, every time getting the same response, and then they realized that this was a legitimate cause-and-effect relationship. My my personal experience, from my own experience, and with patients, is that when somebody who's been poisoned by this goes off it, they very quickly notice an improvement. And they almost equally quickly find out that it isn't over yet. You know, they've got a lot of problems to deal with. And certainly, uh, because I had to suffer with this and had patient groups that had to suffer with it, and then I would consult with doctors around the nation who were pretty much expert in, in the field of environmental ecology, I developed some therapeutic outlooks that people can have to, uh, to help themselves. But the, the first thing you've got to learn is to listen to your body. If, if something's going wrong, try and backtrack to what you had or what you're breathing in your environment or what's going on around you.
But the fact is this thing has been carefully studied, repeatedly studied, extensively studied, so that, as I said before, the FDA concluded it's one of the most thoroughly tested food additives they've ever seen. And the conclusion is that it's safe. They had made the claim years ago that they would help and support any legitimate researcher, that they would supply aspartame and be helpful in any research. I had published my anecdotal uh, studies, and I had uh, written a chapter in Richard Wortman's book, so I, I think the industry knew of my stance already. But then in the mid-90s, I wrote to the company stating that we wanted to do a double-blind study because my earlier work had indeed been, quote, anecdotal. And I pointed out that they had made the claim that they would supply aspartame to any legitimate researcher. At that point, I was a professor at near UConn, Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine. I think I would qualify as a legitimate researcher. The company, uh, I sent the protocol for the study to the company. And they responded that this was unnecessary research and would not supply us aspartame. I offered to buy the aspartame. They refused. They put up roadblocks. They made it very difficult for us to purchase aspartame. We had to go around them. We finally did get USP-grade aspartame from Schweitzel from a private firm. But the point is that the NutraSweet company made it very, very difficult, didn't follow through on their promise to supply aspartame to any legitimate researcher, said this was unnecessary, shouldn't be done, needn't be done, and they tried to block it. The G.D. Searle Company, in the quest to get approval for their product, uh, aspartame, they uh, conducted a study on animals in which they fed some animals, like I said, low dose, medium dose, high dose of the uh, product, and then they used control animals that supposedly did not get any of the product. Uh, when they submitted this to the FDA and the FDA looked at it, there was some question about the study. Well, one of the scientists and neuroscientists looked at some of this and uh, he saw a lot of red flags. He said there's some real questions here about tumors being caused by this product, particularly brain tumors. Uh, so they uh, ordered a study to be done by the Bureau of Foods, or was in charge of this uh, group to, to look through this, the research that had been done by G.D. Searle, and that's what the Bressler reported about. And this is the uh, report here. Basically what it shows is that either a lot of purposeful shenanigans was carried on to get this product approved, or, as he states it, it was the world's worst research. They found that uh, what they did is the animals that died after being fed NutraSweet, they didn't autopsy the animals right away. Uh, some of them were not autopsied more than a year afterwards. And of course the tissues broke down and, and liquefied and so they couldn't do proper studies on them, but they reported it as if they had. And they reported these as normal. Uh, they found that they were taking tumors and cutting them out and throwing them away and saying the animal was normal. Uh, they had animal tissues that had obvious tumors in it that were reported normal. They had, uh, in one of the cases here that's reported, a, a lymph node that was enlarged. And uh, this G.D. Serral pathologist reported it as a normal lymph node. When the scientists from the Bureau of Foods looked at it, uh, they say it was an obvious lymphosarcoma, a highly malignant tumor. Uh, 
the uh, notations about the testicular atrophy were not noted. Uh, there were just numerous, numerous things in this, uh, this report that showed that uh, in my estimation there was an effort to cover up what was being found so that they could get approval. There were so many things wrong with the submitted data from G.D. Searle originally. Um, they had a monkey study, and in this monkey study, they were fed aspartame, and they were fed aspartame with milk. The milk, as you know, normally slows down the absorption of certain chemicals when you, when you drink milk. If you take aspirin in milk, it'll take much longer for the aspirin to go to work. Well, even though the monkeys were drinking aspartame and milk, out of the seven monkeys they had, I think one or two died and four or five had grand mal seizures. Now, these test results were not satisfactory to G.D. Searle. Uh, they weren't going to be able to show these to the FDA saying, hey, look, aspartame, even with milk, uh, caused monkeys to have grand mal seizures. When we did our double-blind study here in this hospital, we had really a tragic situation which occurred, which I attributed directly to the aspartame. We needed volunteers. We looked at both patients, that is, people who had a history of mood disorder, and we needed some controls, that is, people without a history of mood disorder. One of the people that I used in the study was uh, the administrator for our psychiatric unit, who was a PhD psychologist. And several days into this study, he had an emergency. He had an ophthalmologic emergency. That is, he had sudden uh, bleeding in his eye and a detachment of his retina. He had to be rushed to Cleveland for emergency surgery. His eye could not be saved. He lost the vision in one eye. At the same time, we had another participant in the study, a nurse, who also had an episode of intraocular bleeding, that is, bleeding within her eye. So we had two people who, during the course of the study, had eye emergencies. The bottom line was, oh, oh, here is the most tested product, additive in history, an additive. Now, additive is important because aspartame was approved uh, as a grass, G-R-A-S, I mean, it's generally recognized as safe product, in which case, unlike drugs, it, uh, if people have reactions to it, it does not have to be reported to the FDA. And what I found was really quite frightening, and that was that, yes, there were many, many studies in the literature which did attest to aspartame safety, but they were essentially all funded by the industry, either the NutraSweet industry or the diet soft drink industry, these are the individuals who sponsored, paid for the studies. There were independent studies, but virtually all of the independent studies, that is, studies which were not funded by the industry, virtually all of them did identify one type of problem or another with aspartame. And so they got the test results they wanted by manipulating the method. This is not to say that aspartame was safe or that aspartame does not induce seizures because it does. Um, it's just to show you that the scientific data nowadays is unreliable. So how you design the study 
is going to have an impact on the results. And I think that many of the industry-sponsored studies were set up in such a way that the results could be predicted ahead of time and would be supportive of the safety of the product. There is no evidence at the present time that I'm aware of that aspartame in large amounts has a significant effect on brain chemistry. what exactly an excitotoxin is? Well, an excitotoxin, uh, basically what it does, it's a normal transmitter in the brain. These are chemicals that allow brain cells to communicate. Um, but if it's in even a minute over-concentration in the brain, it causes the brain cells to become extremely excited. And they become so excited, they'll very quickly burn themselves out and die. That was one of the first observations by Dr. Olney, and he gave it the name excitotoxin. When was the first uh, time that you heard about aspartame? Was it during that investigation with the FDA? Yes, it was. I, uh, it was in 1970, and it was an interesting story. I was called by Dr. John Olney from Washington University, who I had been working with on MSG and baby food. We had started a, an, an examination of MSG and baby food that led to the baby food industry taking MSG out of baby food. And it was done by the Senate Nutrition Committee. I was the special counsel to the Senate the Select Committee on Nutrition, and they, we ran hearings on food, and one of the things we talked about was uh, MSG in baby food because it caused holes in the brains of rats that were being tested by Dr. Olney. And uh, it was Dr. Olney's hypothesis that a substantial amount of mental retardation, 95% of which is of unknown origin, that a substantial portion of that came from environmental insults, chemicals in the environment, food, air, water, and so forth, and he was testing them and one of them was MSG, and it caused these holes in the brains of mice in his system, and ultimately that led to having MSG taken out of baby food. He called me to say that he'd just done a study on aspartic acid, one of the primary components of NutraSweet, and it was doing the same thing as MSG, and that caused him to be quite concerned about the fact that that uh, cereal drug company at the time was planning to use this as a sweetener. But now, after years of retesting this, most authorities agree there's no question that feeding MSG to animals produces this brain damage. It's not questioned any longer. It's a fact. Uh, there's even good studies that show that if you feed the pregnant animals the MSG, their offspring has impaired brain function. And when you measure the neurochemical uh, analysis of the brain of the animal, it's impaired all the way through the animal's youth up until adulthood, and they never quite recover from it. In one of the conferences which I addressed for the FDA a few years back, uh, there was a study uh, with um, MSG, monosodium glutamate, which is another excited toxin, it's, it's a neurotoxin problem. And I, we could not understand why with the controls had almost the same reaction, number of reactions as the people given it. But it turned out that one of the presumably inert components 
in these capsules of products with M with MSG contained aspartame. So it really was there was something that the even the investigators did not realize was a component of the presumed placebo. The central mechanism that actually produces the destruction and damage to the brain is excitotoxicity. That's pretty well agreed upon now. The frightening thing is that we're adding tons of these excitotoxins to our food, uh, either in the form of MSG or part of the aspartame molecule, uh, which is aspartic acid, which is an excitotoxin. Can, can we talk about the blood-brain barrier and, and how it breaks down? Um, like hypoglycemia can be an example of that, and 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 how um, excitotoxins can pass through that on occasion. Yeah, the blood-brain barrier is one of the big defenses that the industry always gives. They say, well, these things can't get through the blood-brain barrier. Uh, I did rather extensive research in this area, and what I discovered was that there are numerous conditions that we're all subjected to that causes a breakdown of the normal blood-brain barrier. Uh, number one is aging. As we age, our blood-brain barrier begins to deteriorate. It becomes porous. So that anything we eat will pass through the blood into the brain. Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, all of these diseases are associated with the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Strokes, even silent strokes, produce a breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. Exposure to certain para uh, pesticides, herbicides, will break down the blood-brain barrier. Uh, hypoglycemia will break it down. Uh, certain drugs will cause it to break down. Uh, free radical generation will cause it to break down. Well, we know m many of the diseases are caused by free radicals, like diabetes. You can have very high free, level, uh, uh, free radical levels. Extreme exercise, you produce a lot of free radicals. All of this breaks down the blood-brain barrier. Multiple sclerosis, autoimmune diseases, lupus, all these things are associated with the breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. So we know there are millions and millions of people out there who have, at one time or another, a very porous blood-brain barrier. So when they drink a diet cola or they eat MSG, it passes right into their brain very easily. The other thing that we discovered was that even if you had a completely normal, intact blood-brain barrier, if you expose that person to a high dose of these excitotoxins over a prolonged period of time, it will seep past the barrier into the brain. The same building blocks that are found in all of the proteins that we eat, whether they be bananas or meat or peanuts or what, what have you, they are found in NutraSweet. Now, the amino acids are contained in food, but if you have protein, uh, meat, fish, and so forth, there may be 4% phenylalanine in, in the food, not 50%. And we simply, biologically, don't know how still, how to react to this, this flooding of these enormous amounts of amino acids in the body, especially uh, phenylalanine, which crosses the blood-brain barrier. It's meant to protect against, uh, biologically, against poisons and so forth. It's also what's called a dipeptide. That is, it is two amino acids stuck together. One of those amino acids is something called phenylalanine. Phenylalanine 
is the building block for another important neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. So when you take in aspartame, you'll increase the availability of one and you'll decrease the availability of the other, you'll change ratios. And when you do that, when you change ratios of norepinephrine and serotonin, you certainly affect brain function. And this can lead then to mood symptoms, to panic symptoms in some people. It'll affect seizure threshold, which is why I think I saw the seizure in this initial patient back in 1985 and why I saw a lot of seizure activity in people who were taking in a great deal of aspartame. They knew that this uh, product, aspartame, with time breaks down into a product called diketopeprazine. Uh, Diketopeprazine chemically is closely related to a carcinogenic compound. It causes cancer in a lot of animals that they're exposed to it and humans. Uh, so they asked the GD Serol company to do a separate study with uh, the diketopeprazine. Well, when they looked at this study, they found some shenanigans as well. And one of the things is when you mix up the diketopeprazine with the animal's food, you have to homogenize it so that it's evenly distributed and the animal can't see it and avoid it. Uh, well, I've seen pictures of the feed, and they left it in big clumps so the rats were eating around it, not actually eating the diketopeprazine. There was also evidence that they were giving the diketopeprazine uh, to the control animals. And, of course, this came out because in the original study, they found a 47-fold increase in brain tumors. In their diketopeprazine repeat study, they said, oh, well, look, the control animals and the, and the uh, aspartame-fed animals have the same instance of brain tumors. Well, when the neuropathologist looked at it, they said, well, that's kind of strange because now your control animals have uh, a very high instance of brain tumors that's not naturally found in these mice. And then when they looked at the feed, they found out there were some mix-ups in the feed so that the diketopeprazine was being fed to the control animals. Um, these are the sort of things that's in the Bressler report that the uh, makers of NutraSuite would not like the public to know about because it's very frightening. Uh, you know, when the pathologist, uh, Dr. Adrian Gross, looked at the, the material as well, a uh, very well-regarded pathologist, and he looked at it, and he was absolutely shocked. He said it's just an enormous increase in tumors, uh, particularly the brain tumors. And, of course, that's exactly what we're seeing now is this uh, tremendous increase in brain tumors in this country, which is completely unexplained uh, by the neurological profession. a methyl group which is found in all fruits and vegetables. Everything that we eat has methyl groups. When the body metabolizes, when it, when it breaks down aspartame, you wind up with a small amount of methanol, which is wood alcohol. That in turn is broken down into formaldehyde, which the body cannot get rid of, the body stores. Now the industry has made a big deal about uh, supposedly the, the fact not really a fact, but the, what they claim is that when you take in fruit, you take in more methanol. They don't add the fact that in nature, the methanol in fruit is bound to something called pectin. Humans lack the enzyme to split the methanol off from pectin, so it goes through the body without doing any damage whatsoever. The body doesn't get exposed to the methanol because it's bound to pectin. 
So even though there's more of it, it's totally harmless in fruit. But in, with aspartame, you have the pure, unadulterated, free methanol and then formaldehyde. It's a small amount, but the body can't get rid of it. It's a cumulative phenomenon. So we have very, very toxic products. Methyl alcohol is just deadly and probably provides most of the of the poisoning attributed to ethyl alcohol and alcoholics. It, it, is, it is the deadly one. Aside from the pectin story, in fruit, in nature, you also are taking in equal amounts of ethanol. You get both methanol and ethanol, and so they counteract each other. And so there's essentially no impact. You're not poisoning yourself when you take in fruit. I believe you're poisoning yourself when you take in aspartame. What's, what's the difference between methyl and ethyl alcohol? Okay, it's a difference of one carbon atom. Ethyl alcohol has one carbon atom. Ethyl alcohol has two carbon atoms. The uh, human metabolism is geared to using carbon atoms in groups of two or three or more. Uh, when you get down to one, methyl alcohol, wood alcohol, has obligatory metabolism to formaldehyde. Formaldehyde, which is embalming fluid, is 5,000 times as potent a poison as is sipping alcohol. The FDA, which is the watchdog of American safety that we have empowered to protect the American public against food additives and drugs, has repeatedly reviewed all of the data that has been forthcoming from hundreds of studies about aspartame. Back in 1965, according to G.D. Searle, one of their researchers was working on an ulcer drug when he happened to get some of the substance on his finger and, instinctively, he licked it, noticing its sweet taste. One of the first tests conducted on aspartame was a 52-week study of monkeys to determine the effects of aspartame on primates. Seven monkeys were fed aspartame with milk. Five of those monkeys had grand mal seizures, and one died. Monkeys have a, more of a reaction to ethanol, regular alcohol like vodka or scotch. They have a real high resistance to methanol, and even though they were fed aspartame with milk, they still came down with seizures and, and, and one died of, I guess, cardiac arrest from overstimulated nervous system. Searle um, went back and got another physician, a, a fellow named Dr. Wellington, and this guy sat down and redesigned the monkey study. In that same year, Dr. John Olney found that oral intake of aspartic acid could cause brain tumors in mice. We had this situation where the company uh, initially seemed to be responsive to the concerns, and uh, they actually sent um, a team of researchers to Dr. Olney's laboratory, and uh, they recreated the studies. The serial, the serial investigators recreated the studies that uh, showed these, this brain damage in animals. And um, they went back to Cyril, and uh, we waited to hear what Cyril was going to do about this. And the next thing we knew... Uh, I would say that they probably went to Dr. Olney's lab mid-71. Mid-73, they applied to uh, the FDA for a food additive petition to use NutraSweet as a sweetener. So I called the FDA and I said, this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Dr. Olney uh, was asked by G.D. Searle to conduct a study because there were some concerns. 
And it's interesting to note that these concerns came up before a lot of the major testing into the toxicity of aspartame became apparent. But my thinking as an FDA investigator is that G.D. Searle already knew that going into this. Ultimately, FDA, using its good offices, interestingly enough, a major person there, created a meeting between me, uh, uh, Searle, and General Foods, which was going to be one of the main customers. And we met. And um, I said I didn't think that this would ever reach the market. And they said, well, they were sure it was going to be approved. And I thought that we were on 180 degrees opposite sides. It turned out that it was approved, but FDA asked them not to market it. And they held it up so that there could be hearings and so forth. In 1974, the FDA approved the limited use of aspartame. Do you know why they were sure it was going to be approved? You said that they they said that it was sure that they. It was well, see, see, when I said I don't think it's going to read the reach the market, I was being very particular, but I didn't believe it was going to be approved because the evidence didn't show. They said it was. Now, now, one uh, very strange fact in all of that is that I knew that they had the brain damage study from Olney's lab that their own people had done. And we talked about the various pieces of evidence that uh, were problems. And I finally said, what about the brain damage problem from the animals in Dr. Olney's laboratory that your own people have gone and looked at? And he said, we don't think those are going to be a problem. Well, it turned out they weren't a problem because they didn't give them to the FDA. So, so here they had in their own files a study that raised very serious questions that they did not give to the FDA. That's a violation of law. G.D. Searle did not inform the FDA of this study until after aspartame's approval. This approval came despite the fact that FDA scientists found serious deficiencies in all tests related to genetic damage. And so all these concerns were all rolling around inside FDA, and they were trying to organize them into a policy. And every time they would organize them into a policy at the bench and science level, and they would go up one level to the, where the policy people were, the policy people would overrule them. A month later, Olney and Turner filed a formal objection, stating that they believed aspartame could cause brain damage. But anyway, we, we filed our petition. Dr. Olney filed one and I filed one attacking um, the approval. And the FDA said, right, there are some factual, uh, some factual information we should look into. We'll have a public hearing. Only because some of the investigators working for the Food and Drug Administration, looking at this data, knew that the data did not contain adequate safety information about aspartame. In 1975, due to serious questions over the quality and validity of G.D. Searle's testing of aspartame and other pharmaceuticals, the FDA formed a special task force to examine 11 of the pivotal studies on aspartame. Pivotal studies are those upon which the FDA bases approval or disapproval. Of the 113 studies, done on aspartame submitted to the FDA by Searle, 90 were conducted in the early to mid-1970s. Every test the FDA called pivotal was part of this 90. In March of 1976, the FDA completed their 500-page report after finishing their investigation. The um, report by the FDA uh, team that inspected it is the most devastating report about research that has probably ever been written about a specific company. And uh, that led to a uh, series of hearings in Congress and came up with a $12 million appropriation 
to FDA to enforce uh, uh, good laboratory practices. But what happened is there's a policy resolution, but NutraSweet and, uh, and Cyril got bypassed in the sense that they took this all over here and said, look at this terrible thing that's going on. There were a couple others that were going on at the same time. We've got to do something, and they did something. What they did was going forward, you have to meet these requirements. They didn't do anything about going backwards and saying, look, the stuff you're putting, stuff you came through here is uh, killing people. Now, the reason they didn't do that at the time, because it happened in, 50, uh, in 75 and 76, is that it was the assumption of everyone in the process that the FDA was going to handle it. So FDA, one of the things FDA did that was so uh, striking and remarkable is that they, uh, knowing that they had this terrible situation on their hands, hired a, uh, a uh, group of pathologists. It's a pathology research group. FDA hired them to review the serial studies, but had serial pay for it. So the result was, here's a company which makes its money by being hired and paid for to do studies. Well, why would it do a study that was going to be critical of NutraSweet? In 1977, the FDA chief counsel, Richard Merrill, recommended to U.S. Attorney Samuel Skinner that a grand jury be set up to investigate G.D. Searle. Well, FDA did attempt to do something, and it wasn't the political part of the FDA. These were the people that really were trying to work and do well. Um, one of the counsel's lawyers for the Food and Drug Administration contacted the U.S. attorney in Chicago and to bring an indictment against G.D. Searle for fraud, for uh, deletion of records, uh, manipulation of records, um, the falsification of records, and a number of other things on the testing that they did on aspartame and several other products as well. Suddenly, U.S. Attorney Samuel Skinner began preliminary employment discussions with G.D. Searle's law firm, Sidley & Austin. The U.S. Justice Department urged Attorney Samuel Skinner to proceed with the grand jury, pointing out that the statute of limitations on prosecution would soon run out. Samuel Skinner withdrew from the G.D. Searle case, and Assistant U.S. Attorney William Conlon was assigned to the grand jury investigation. Shortly afterwards, Samuel Skinner left his job to work for G.D. Searle's law firm. The assistant he left behind let the statute of limitations run out on the aspartame charges. This assistant, William Conlon, was hired 15 months later by G.D. Searle's law firm, Sidley and Austin. Uh, the common denominator for all of this, unfortunately, is money. And the amount of money that was splashed around um, induced people to drop the lawsuit against G.D. Searle and, and come work for the very firm that they were going to um, try for illegal activity. And that's what happened with the U.S. attorney. That's what happened with, with several people working for the Food and Drug Administration at that time. If they passed aspartame, literally, they were promised great jobs when they finished with FDA. Uh, and it was interesting, the main guy that made the decisions uh, that overruled them uh, in the Bureau of Foods went on to work for the uh, Soft Drink Association. And actually, seven of the key people that made decisions that kept NutraSweet moving through the process ended up working for one or another NutraSweet using industry. That's kind of an interesting side effect to the whole thing. I like to do well at things. It, it's important to me that if you're given an assignment that you try to do it the best you can. I'm afraid that some people confuse that with some sort of uh, single-mindedness on my part. Uh, 
Donald Rumsfeld uh, went into the company after he left Washington, after Ford lost, and uh, that would be uh, in uh, 1977, is in business, and uh, he was the congressman from there. And then he went to the White House, where he was White House Chief of Staff, and then he became the Secretary of Defense. And he's involved in a whole group of people around Chicago that um, uh, they're involved in a whole range of things, national security being one of them. He was also a part of the RAND Corporation, one of the major defense think tanks. He's a very, he's a very, um, uh, he's a very uh, uh, bright guy, like in the best and the brightest, you know, the kind of people that brought us Vietnam. These are people who believe that thinking is the primary way that you get through life. Having values, feelings, and so forth, they denigrate. So he took over this company, and it was, in, it was going down the tubes completely. It had FDA investigations. It had, um, it had uh, uh, grand jury investigations. It was losing money. Its stock was down. A person was hired to come in and explain why the FDA was so down on them and went through all of their records and said, you guys haven't got a chance. This company is, is a mess, a total mess. And he went in with a full team of politicians. He went in with himself, a politician. Uh, he brought his special assistant, who was um, uh, a, a Republican Party operative, worked with the Republican National Committee, brought in a press guy from there, brought in lawyers, and they took on the issue of this company as a political issue. And um, one of the first things that he, not first, but somewhere in that first year, it was late in the year, he called me and said, let's have a meeting. So I went and I met with him. We flew into the Madison Hotel and we met, with, and, we met and we talked. And my point was that the uh, struggle that was going on around NutraSuite was a scientific struggle. We needed to know the scientific answers. And this was before the public court of inquiry had ruled. We needed to know the answers. So why don't we, the people who were raising all the questions about NutraSuite and the company, together create a, um, a set of protocols that we would agree address the serious questions that needed to be looked at to decide whether or not it should be, be marketed. So we had this meeting. And, uh, we, and uh, for about six months, his staff and I and, and, and our group negotiated out how we could proceed on this. His own scientists didn't want to do it. For example, at the, at the time that uh, they put their uh, evidence into FDA in, 19, um, in 1973, there were no requirements at FDA to examine effects on the brain from food additives, no requirements whatsoever. So there never was a study done to look at whether or not this affected the brain in, uh, in a neurological sense. The cancer studies were incidental. Those were cancer studies, but these were not brain studies. The cancer studies turned up brain tumors, but they didn't look, for example, at these holes in the brain or mental retardation or uh, lowering the ability of people to think or causing dizziness or blindness or any of those things. None of that was looked at. And uh, we were proposing that we design some studies to look at it. And uh, that was the direction I thought we should go. And I should say that at that point, I was involved with a group of people from uh, the food industry. We had created something called the Food Safety Council. We had 35 major corporations, and it had a board that was half corporate people and half uh, consumer advocates, uh, academic people, environmentalists, and so forth, to look at the standards for food safety. And we had written a whole series of standards for food safety. Basically, what I was saying to Rumsfeld is, why don't you bring your company into the same framework that all these other companies have agreed to be a part of? And, um, and uh, we had a very good, very full and frank exchange. His scientists kept jumping up and running around the room and saying, there's no problem, there's no problem, there's no problem. 
Ultimately, he made the decision not to find out what the facts were, but to move forward on the limited record that they had before them. And I believe it was a decision that was made that said we can, we can accomplish our ends better legally and politically than we can by actually doing the science to determine the outcome of the questions that are being asked. And in my mind, that demonstrated that he was an individual not interested in facts, not interested in the truth, not interested in finding out what the fundamental realities are, but much, much more interested in setting a goal and then, and then by will and force pulling all the resources that he could possibly pull together to achieve that goal, i.e. get NutraSuite on the market and sold. And so Donald Rumsfeld had been all these, in the, all these meetings and known um, all of these potentially harm, very harmful effects of this substance that he then went on and continued to market? Well, I, I, I can't say what Donald Rumsfeld knew or didn't know. Uh, he's not a scientist. He's not very interested in science, from what I can tell. More or less, uh, he's uh, you know he's he's a he's a fixer. He's a he's a uh, he's a um, an operative. He he uh, you assign him a job and he goes and he does it. Uh, now I'm I'm sure that as he gets up into the level of defense department, he, he sort of makes up his own jobs and says I'm going to do these things. But the but facts are not all that important to how he proceeds because he's so confident that he knows what the outcome should be that he will look across, at least in the way he did a NutraSuite, he looked across the horizon to find all those facts that would support his position and then minimized or denigrated all the facts that didn't support his position. In 1980, the Public Board of Inquiry voted unanimously to reject the use of aspartame until additional studies could be done on aspartame's potential to cause brain tumors. The product was, uh, was uh, said not to be, it was ruled by law, it was said you cannot market this product. And then they had to go and do a political triage and get in there and manipulate the process. So, I mean, the, the manipulation was so powerful that uh, the first, one of the first things that Ronald Reagan did when he became president was suspend the authority of the FDA commissioner to take any actions. So he was sworn in, in whatever day in January, and the next day he issued a, an executive order eliminating the FDA commissioner's authority to take actions. Uh, there was obviously a fear on the part of somebody that the commissioner was going to do something about NutraSuite or something else that would create difficulty because it took him a while to get a new commissioner. It took him over, a little over a month to get a new commissioner, get the old one out and the new one in. And in that month, the old commissioner was prevented from taking any actions by an executive order. And that, that, that takes a high level of political clout to do that. But that's political triage on a situation that had gone sour uh, uh, because Rumsfeld had made the decision to... Um, uh, just power his way through and and ignore getting the facts. In 1981, the day after Ronald Reagan took office as U.S. President, J.D. Searle reapplied for the approval of aspartame. Several new studies were submitted along with their application. Three of the five FDA scientists responsible for reviewing brain tumor issues advised against the approval of aspartame. Under the watch of the new FDA commissioner, Arthur Hall Hayes, the panel lawyer assigned a new panel member to eventually achieve a 3-3 split over aspartame. On July 18, 1981, Arthur Hall Hayes overruled the Public Board of Inquiry to approve aspartame for use in dry foods. Furthermore, the FDA impaneled its own panel to review the Public Board of Inquiry. Three of those people were assigned review the cancer part of the public board of inquiry, the part that said you can't market it. Those three scientists 
every single one of them said, we agree with the Public Board of Inquiry. These are three FDA senior scientists. We agree with the Public Board of Inquiry. They met with the commissioner the night before he announced that he was going to approve NutraSweet and begged him not to approve NutraSweet. Animals just ordinarily do not get brain tumors. And this should have been enough to have invoked the so-called Delaney Amendment to the 1958 Food and Drug Act. It says that if something causes tumors or cancer in experimental animals, you should not approve it for human use. In 1983, the FDA approved the use of aspartame in carbonated beverages. Under charges of improprieties, Arthur Hull Hayes left the FDA and was hired as a consultant for $1,000 a day by G.D. Searle's public relations firm. NutraSweet or aspartame is the most studied food ingredient ever approved by the FDA, and not just by the FDA, but by more than 70 regulatory bodies around the world. In order to rubber stamp it around the world, you've got to get it approved in another country. Okay, so let's take Europe. If England were to find out that they wanted them indicted for fraud, if they ever read these reports by the CDC or uh, the FDA Board of Inquiry saying it's not safe or found out, you know, about the, that they wanted them indicted, naturally they're not going to approve it. So what they did was uh, Searle, the manufacturer, made a business deal with the professor Paul Turner, who was in the regulatory agency in England, and he approved it without anybody knowing it. Parliament had a big blowout about it, and the story was in The Guardian. I have a copy of it. But they did not rescind the order. There were no studies done in the U.K., and it was uh, rubber-stamped then around the world. They could say, well, it was approved in the United States, it was approved in Europe, and then it was approved, you know, in other places. Uh, they used, to, they tried to get it approved in Canada, and they couldn't do it. But once they got it approved in Europe, they began to rubber-stamp it around the world. The American Dietetic Association, the American Diabetes Association, the American Medical Association, goes all the way down the line. And if you were to see and read their journals and publications and see who the sponsors were and the people who were paying a great deal for advertising therein, it would make a little bit more sense. But, but the Center for Disease Control didn't investigation and said it was safe. No, the Center for Disease uh, never said it was safe either. What they did, here is the Center for Disease Control Investigation. And uh, it's a 146-page document. What it goes into, what was happening to the people, goes into cardiac arrest, it goes into seizures, it goes into liver problems, it goes into mood alteration, and it goes into death. And it ends up by saying that more neurological studies need to be done. Now, here's what happened. If you go to the Center for Disease Control website, uh, you will see a summary, not this 146-page investigation, but a summary that contradicts this report, saying that it was just mild findings. And I told 
Dr. Satcher, before he left the CDC and became Surgeon General, I said, if you don't take that phony summary off, I will put the whole 146-page investigation on web and let the world see what the Center for Disease Control did. And we do have it on www.dorway.com, like doorway with one O. You can read this entire investigation, and this is the original document. Betty Martini and her organization, Mission Possible, have served as a lighthouse for people who suspect their toxin to be aspartame and wish to learn more. For over 10 years, she has worked tirelessly to inform people of this issue, often challenged by the pharmaceutical and food industries. Mission Possible is the central hub for prevailing knowledge of aspartame. Betty Martini and Mission Possible contribute to Doorway.com, a website that is likely the most frequently cited Internet source on this issue. A substantial find in my investigation was Betty Martini. Her work is an act of charity, and her sources are credible. And, of course, as the case histories came in on the Internet, and they were just coming in so fast that one day I got 12,000 case histories of people suffering from aspartame and crashed my computer. So uh, four support groups have been set up on the Internet to take care of these people because finally they wondered. They'd been going from doctor to doctor. They read that, and uh, they realized why they had MS. They realized about lupus. They realized about diabetes. Many of them called just hysterical, crying, you know, could this be true? Could this be true? But as they got off, their MS symptoms disappeared. People that were blind could see again. Now the current philosophy within the Food and Drug Administration is, let's go ahead and we'll approve this food additive or whatever is in here, and we'll let the people prove that it's dangerous. They were calling the uh, FDA. They were calling the hospitals, the doctors. They were calling the CDC. I got one email from the CDC. And they said, you know, people are calling over here. They're hysterical about this. I said, well, whose fault is it? You did the most damning investigation ever done. I said, and then you put this phony summary up there instead of, you know, you should be doing what I'm doing. You know, you are the Center for Disease Control, and we're having to alert the world, you know, because you people sold out. And then you, then you get up with this very terrible equation that says, well, if this thing only harms one in a million people, we'll consider it to be safe. Now, harms, they say kills. If it, if it kills only one in a million people, the FDA considers it to be safe. So what you have then by, that, by virtue of that is you're saying that as far as we're concerned, something that kills between 200 and 300 people a year, we consider safe. That doesn't work for the 200 or 300 people. And so if you're going to do that, you better have, a pro, better have a label somewhere that says safe means we'll kill no more than two or 300 people a year. And I, I, I want to pose that to people because I've had a conversation with some other federal regulators, and I said, you know, with all the technology we have today, with all the advances in medicine and science, people are getting sicker. And has anyone noticed that? Uh, people are, are buying more pharmaceutical drugs to, to cure the very things that these chemical companies started to begin with. So I'm thinking from the womb to the tomb, you're going to be paying money to these pharmaceutical companies, and they're going to be manipulating the politics so you get to consume all of their poisons, all of the toxins, fully untested. 
And we're going to see five or six years from now people coming down with new kinds of diseases, things that we've never even heard of today. You know, you have to take some responsibility for what you're putting in your mouth. But in this case, they have no way of knowing. you got the FDA lying to them. they got the CDC, the professional organizations. They go to the doctors. The doctors can't help them because they've been lied to, too. Doctors only know what they're taught, and they only believe what they're allowed to believe. So I think it was the year 1917, but I could be wrong. Somewhere in that era, they developed the electrocardiogram. The year before, indigestion was the number one cause of death in the United States. The year after electrocardiogram was invented, uh, myocardial infarction was the number one cause of death in the United States. So a lot of doctors are still back on the Nutrisweet issue. They're, they're still way back in the era before anybody allowed them to know anything wrong with it. These things are prolonged effects, and of course if a physician sees it, and they see a, a child with a seizure, uh, they're not going to connect it to the MSG or aspartame because they don't know about this research. They're not familiar with it. Uh, they'll just tell the mother, well, I don't see how that could be related, you know, something you drank when you were pregnant. We're about ready to meet Diane Fleming, who was convicted of murdering her husband by methanol poisoning. Her attorney neglected to mention that uh, he was a big her husband was a big consumer of aspartame products, and aspartame breaks down into methanol and could have uh, been the cause of his death rather than her. That's a possibility that was never brought out in court, and therefore she got 50 years in this prison. Um, we're about ready to meet her and hear her side of the story, so stay tuned. Um. Describe your husband to me. Tell me what he was like. Well, he was he kept he kept himself a lot. I don't think a lot of people knew him real well. You know, he didn't want to socialize with people at work or anything. He was very driven at work. Like he never missed work, even the, the morning in question when he got up sick and he's saying, "Oh, I feel terrible," but he went to work because that's what he did. We had a weight machine, we had a stair climber, we had a treadmill, and he read everything he could find about how to, the right way to do weights, and you know, like you do sets instead of just doing it, you know, you do so many repetitions and stop for a minute and then do it again like three times, something like that. He was pretty much obsessed with building his body, he didn't want to be fat, like, relatives, <laughs> he started reading about creatine and said that he wanted to try it, and he talked about it for a while beforehand, and apparently what it does is it pulls the muscle, it pulls water to the muscles to pump them up more. I was wondering exactly what it was. Yeah, that, you know, that doesn't sound like a good idea, messing with the fluid balances in your body, pulling water from one place, you know, putting it someplace else, but... And I think it has something to do with the recovery um, time. And he wanted to try that. And uh, we picked up some Gatorade. He was trying to decide what to put it in because you could mix it in, they said water or fruit juice, but water probably wouldn't taste too good. And he didn't drink fruit juice. <laughs> so he said, well, maybe Gatorade. He thought he could tolerate that. So we got the the 20-ounce bottles, like a case, 
I guess it was 24, it's assorted flavors. You know, he kind of tasted, see how it tasted, and then sat in the fridge and went to the pool with our daughter and came back. Well, then he played basketball from about 4 until 7 with the guys, mostly some guys from church. And they would meet at the middle school. And came back and drank that. Even when he came back from playing ball, he wasn't feeling good, but it was very hot. That month, that summer, it got hot early. Even in May and early June, it was really hot. It, you know, and he always felt lousy. I'm short of breath, I can't breathe. He was like, lay down, get up, and you know, he said he couldn't breathe. So, kissing, well, do you want me to, you know, what, you know, do you want me to call the doctor again? Do you want, want me to take you to the hospital? What do you want me to do? And this went on for about a half an hour, I guess. And finally he said, okay, you can call the ambulance. Because he, I guess, finally started feeling that bad. Feel, feeling bad enough. Because you know how men are. They won't go for anything. So, called the ambulance and he was showing some signs of maybe being a little bit disoriented, but he was still talking and everything, answering the questions. The paramedics thought kind of what I did, that he was dehydrated from throwing up so much and that his electrolytes might have been out of whack because they said, well, we need to get some fluid in you and get some electrolytes. And um, his breathing was real fast. They you know, tried to get him to slow his respirations down. They said he was hyperventilating and they thought that was a lot of his problem. And they put him in the ambulance and, you know, transported him. And about, after we'd gotten out of our neighborhood and into... And through the other neighborhood, we were um, still kind of going on the back roads, they turned the lights on, and that kind of scared me when they because there wasn't traffic. It was, um, so we were crossing over the lake. They turned the lights on. But I called his parents in. After I'd um, done all the paperwork, you know, they took him on back, but I had to give them the insurance information and everything. They eventually called me back there, and he was still conscious, but he was way incoherent. You know, he wasn't making any sense, and he was real, like, wanting to get up off the gurney and everything and and they finally had to give him some Ativan IV to calm him down because he wouldn't stay, you know. What's that? Ativan is, um, it's in the same family as Valium. Um, wound up putting him then in the MACU, Medical Intensive Care Unit. By the time he got up there, he wasn't really conscious anymore, but then they had pumped him full of Ativan, too, so it's hard to say. You know, I don't know at what point... Really? <laughs> I'm not on so loft anymore, so... <laughs> I don't know at what point he really went into a coma, you know, and when it was the Ativan. I know that night. Um, I mentioned to him he wore the extended wear lenses, and even though you sleep in those things, you know, the, the nurses don't usually like for patients to have them in. I know they make you take them out 
usually that's one of the things they ask you, and I brought it. And they said, what would you take his lenses out now? And, and he, he kind of responded to that, you know, like whenever I was trying to remove his lenses, which is really hard to do on another person. During the course of it, you know, when we were going over, you know, trying to, you know, figure out everything, I told him that he had been complaining of shortness of breath for a few weeks. About in early May, he started complaining of shortness of breath. And the first week or two of May, he had had a, a stress echo. I, I finally got him to go to our doctor, and he ordered a stress echo. And early the next morning, the doctor called and said that they'd already gotten the toxicology back, which they weren't expecting that for a long time. They said it would take, you know, a couple of days, which sounds kind of bad. And they said they'd gotten it back and they found methanol in his system. Apparently, your body doesn't metabolize methanol. That's what they were telling me, and then I, I read up on it. As soon as they told me this is what it was, I started reading up on it too on the internet. Your body can't metabolize methanol like it does ethanol. When it de when it tries to, it breaks down into formaldehyde and maybe some other things. But the formaldehyde is what is really bad. So what they do is to try to the same enzyme that in your body that works on the methanol is the same enzyme that breaks down ethanol, the kind of alcohol that you drink. So the treatment is to infuse ethanol intravenously and then your body, instead of working on the methanol, it kind of leaves it alone and works on the ethanol. That gives them time to try to use dialysis and stuff to get the methanol out of your system. Well. They kept saying they weren't able to get his blood alcohol level up enough. And even though they were taking into consideration that he was a drinker, you know, apparently drinkers, you know, you can handle more alcohol. Your body works with it better. So they, you know, gave him more than what they would have a non-drinker, but they said they weren't, didn't feel like they were able to get his blood alcohol level up enough. So they, but they were doing the dialysis. Um, I think they started him on that the next, the very next day, I believe, the second day. They started him on the dialysis, but you know, he just wasn't responding at all. He just, you know, um, like I said, they, you know, then they they decided he was in a coma at some point, I guess, because after the Ativan wore off, and they weren't, and he still was unresponsive. They um, did a CAT scan and said that he had suffered a major that he had suffered a major brain bleed, <clears throat> a brain bleed, and the size and location was such that he said no, no one could survive that, even if they were successful in getting the methanol out of his body, but because of the, the bleeding in the brain, you know, that wasn't. So they started talking about discontinuing life support. And, you know, 
We talked about it. Um, that was on that Wednesday. And now they kept assuring us that there was no way, even if they kept treating the methanol, that because of the brain damage, that there was nothing that could be done. So I wanted to wait until the next, give it another day. Um, well, I was the one that called the police. <laughs> that morning, that Wednesday morning, when Dr. Akers, he called me before I got there, you know, it was before 7.30. I was getting Megan ready for school. He said, we think this may have been a poisoning, an intentional poisoning, and you need to get the police involved. I'm like, how do I do that, you know? So I said, okay, even though we, that afternoon before, you know, the decision about removing life support, I met the police. They asked me to come back to the house so they could look for possible sources. Specialists have looked at it now said that the amount of diet drinks that he consumed would easily account for the levels of methanol that he had in his body. I think drinking the creatine just kind of must have pushed it over the edge, you know. Um, adulteration of a substance and first-degree murder. And the jury um, gave me 20 years on the adulteration and 30 on the murder, and the judge ran them concurrently. We're all human, you know, people are human, and people like to believe that 12 people on a jury found her guilty, so she must be guilty. No way, you know. I mean, I've, I have argued that since day one, and I still do not understand what those people could have possibly heard in those testimonies. You read the transcript. What could they have heard that could possibly have convinced them that Diane Fleming could have killed her husband? I included Diane Fleming in my journey because chronic methanol toxicity from aspartame was not considered at all in her case. Instead, they chose to prosecute her for supposedly pouring a sealed bottle of blue windshield wiper fluid into Gatorade to poison her husband. While there is no way that I can definitively state the precise or exact cause of my own condition, I did drink 6 to 10 cans of diet soda per day for 20 years, and when my body told me to stop, I eventually got better. I can also state that I have spoken to healthcare professionals who agree with me that aspartame is a probable culprit. When I first embarked upon this journey, a part of me was expecting to return empty-handed. What I uncovered, however, was that the current measures of food safety are failing us. the makers and manufacturers of aspartame now if you could. I think they owe me a fortune. They owe me an apology. But they owe me a fortune. I live on social security disability. I have nothing left. I'm very heavily in debt. I am trying very hard to start my own business. But that in itself takes money that I don't have. So I'm doing it bits and pieces as I can. But after that, I mean, just each day was just better and better and better. I'm still finding things that it's in because they don't label it very well. And that is very, very aggravating um, because you have to read each label. And I've got three kids and everything. And I don't have a whole lot of time to go spending a year and a half in the grocery store to do a week's worth of groceries and reading every label that I get my hands on. I've been into chat areas and talked to people with 
multiple sclerosis, and they're very, very hostile to people like me. So I don't tout it too much. All the while, I've learned that uh, there is a very safe uh, sweetener that's an alternative to sugar called Stevia, S-T-E-V-I-A. To this day, the FDA will not allow Stevia to be labeled, advertised, or promoted as a sweetener. It cannot state that. It's just an alternative food supplement. by armed guards. That was the private meeting place for Georgia legislators and corporate lobbyists. Now, who paid for it all? That's the big question. Chief Investigator Brendan Keith holds the powerful accountable tonight. Brendan? The 11 Alive investigators discovered an organization that gets money from lobbyists, gives it to legislators, and it's all considered charity. We found the fabled back rooms where laws are really made. show you what's behind this closed door, a place where legislators and corporate lobbyists have an equal vote, a place they don't want you to see. Um, you need to be credentialed. At we are credentialed. We are Georgia. We're Georgia Media. Are there legislators in there? Are there legislators in there? We are Georgia Credentialed Media. Over here? Please step over here. What? We're, there's Georgia legislators here. Are laws being made in there? This isn't the state capitol. It's a resort hotel in Savannah where lawmakers are wined and dined as members of the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. What is ALEC? It's a, really a corporate bill mill. I mean, they're cranking out legislation put into the hands of legislators to go back and file it. Georgia Senator Nan Oreck would know she was once an ALEC member. What happens in these back rooms? There are votes taken that have the corporate folks at the same table voting with the legislators on what bills to pick. And that, that at its core just screams out uh, inappropriate. You're telling me that in these rooms a corporation has an equal vote with a legislator on a piece of legislation. They absolutely vote, and the truth be told, they write the bill. ALEC bills come complete with blanks where legislators need only fill in their state name, like the Asbestos Claims Priorities Act. This Georgia law that now prevents many asbestos victims from suing corporations matches the ALEC bill clause after clause, often word for word. The final vote was taken here at the Georgia Capitol. But the bill was first approved here, inside a Las Vegas casino at a closed-door ALEC meeting. Records show the three Georgia senators who sponsored the bill received more than $22,000 in ALEC scholarships to attend resort meetings the year before, during, and after the asbestos law was passed. This is money from corporations to legislators, but it's being filtered through ALEC, and they get a tax write-off? 
Well, ALEC is a 501c3 organization, Charitable Educational Purposes. That's right. ALEC is an educational charity. The signature of Georgia's Speaker of the House, David Ralston, appears on this 2013 ALEC fundraising letter. He writes, your support of the scholarship fund is critical, enabling Georgia legislators to attend the annual meetings. Donations are 100% tax deductible and fund education efforts for legislators. Who's doing the educating? Inside that closed-door committee room in Savannah we couldn't show you, we saw the lobbyist for the cell phone industry seated across from Georgia State Rep Ben Harbin right before we were pulled out. Here we're credentialed to observe legislators here in Georgia, wherever they meet, to discuss laws. He's calling for backup. Alex Staffers had four off-duty sheriff's deputies standing by while we talked with the group's director of communications. Can we do an interview with you? Actually, no. Uh, Why not? Uh, if you please turn the camera on. No. We can't turn the camera off. We, you know, that's one thing we don't do. Okay. Well, then I'd like to have you escorted out of the building. Please. Okay. We, I'm a guest of this hotel. I'm actually staying here. You are staying at this. Yeah. So here's the question: Is if Georgia legislators are meeting here, we're credentialed right here to see Georgia legislators making laws. Are they discussing things that could become law here? Georgia legislators are here participating in discussions, or they're learning from legislators from others. So why can't the people who elected them see the process? This is a private meeting. A private meeting paid for by whom? By our members and donors. Our lobbyists, correct? No. Are you here for this conference too? We met two lobbyists and a state representative from New England in the hotel bar the night before and recorded our conversation. Do you have to pay your own way? to the event actually helps subsidize the legislator coming here. Our lobbyists, correct? No. They're not lobbyists? The ones that we recorded in the bar last night aren't lobbyists who are here members? He signals to the sheriff's deputies. All right, we're, I'm a guest of a hotel, not, not sir. Not for long. Not for long. I'm, I'm here okay. a paying guest of this hotel, sir. We'll take care of that. Let's go get your room and get your clothes. Did we violate some law or something? I mean, are we violating a law here? Don't say nothing. One of the Georgia senators who sponsored that asbestos bill, Renee Unterman, told the 11 Alive investigators she later dropped out of ALEC, calling it a group of angry white men controlled by industry, not legislators. Major corporations like Atlanta-based Coca-Cola have also dropped out of ALEC. Wow, eye-opening to say the least. Do lawmakers have to report payments for travel to these kinds of resort meetings? You would think, Brenda, but in Georgia, the answer is no. We filed half a dozen open records requests with Georgia legislators, including the Speaker of the House, asking for receipts and reimbursements to ALEC events. Well, today, we received this letter from their lawyer. Your request is denied. Quote, the General Assembly is not subject to the Georgia Open Records Law. Huh. In other words, lawmakers specifically exempted themselves from a law they passed to make Georgia government more transparent. The good thing more eye-opening. standing for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, wow. This is just baffling. We'll stay on. Yeah, and, and we wouldn't know it had it not been for this no. report. No. All right, Brendan, thank, thank you. you. Mind-blowing. Thank you.
Swiss banks stand accused of collaborating with the Nazis. Swiss bankers who dealt with Hitler's Reich. New evidence uncovered by Time Watch shows that many who financed him came from uncomfortably closer to home. The notion that the Swiss uh, were the primary collaborators of the Germans is to me absurd. The emphasis, I think, is misplaced. <laughs> Were the Swiss admirable in all respects? Probably not, but who was? While war raged, there were British and American bankers who continued to do business with the Nazis. Germany won the war, they wanted access to the to the other side. They were terribly cynical people who felt that the war would end as all wars do, and they would go right back to business as usual. Franklin Delano Roosevelt Library at Hyde Park, New York, records of the president's term in office are stored. Amongst the many papers are the diaries and records of Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's secretary of the treasury. Morgenthau's diaries reveal an astonishing story of how both national and commercial banks created a system which helped finance the Nazis. To solve this problem, German economist Jalmar Schacht masterminded a new bank, the Bank for International Settlements based in Basel, Switzerland. The BIS, as it was known, would be the central bank to Europe's national banks, such as the Bank of England and Germany's Reichsbank. Together with the Bank of Japan, the great national banks of Europe opened an account at the BIS and settled their debts by gold and credit transfer. For Germany, it would be a mechanism for paying its huge First World War reparations. The BIS was a, uh, a bank set up in 1930 to help transfer reparations. The bank was used to intermediate between the uh, Germans paying reparations and the uh, uh, Allies receiving it. And then it became useful as a club of central bankers in Europe who would get together once a month and, and discuss their common interests. 
The board of the BIS was made up of member nations who held a share in the bank and was supported by a team of economists. My father, Per Jacobson, was appointed as economic advisor. This was a revolutionary step. Central banks didn't have economists on them in those days. As a young economic student in Basel, Erin Jakobsen came to know BIS board members as friends of the family, including one of the most important, Montague Norman, governor of the Bank of England. Norman was also a close personal friend of Jalmar Schacht. Both used instinct, as did my father. Their economics was based on the instinct they had, and they sort of knew what was around the corner. They had the same job, and you know, if someone has much the same job as you do, you can talk to them in a different way to some outsider. Well, I can't remember ever hearing that there'd been something that had caused more than a slight discussion. They were on the same sort of line through thick and thin. In 1933, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. He appointed Schacht as head of the Reichsbank and Nazi representative at the BIS. Hitler said of Schacht, it was his consummate skill at swindling other people which made him indispensable at the time. After all, seeing that the whole gang of financiers is a bunch of crooks, what possible point was there in being scrupulously honest with them? Before each meeting of the International Bank of Basel, half the world was anxious to know whether Schacht would attend or not. It was only after the assurance that he would be there that the Jew bankers of the entire world packed their bags and prepared to attend. In spite of his ability, I could never trust Schacht, for I had often seen how his face lit up when he succeeded in swindling someone out of a hundred mark note. Schacht, of course, was a complicated uh, fellow. He was sometimes being a central banker, sometimes being a, a Nazi, sometimes being an anti-Nazi. If you read his work, he's all, all over the place. It was Schacht's job to arrange finance for the building of the Third Reich. The BIS channeled investments from the Allied powers into Germany for the expansion of her economy. Although after 1933 there were no new investments, existing investments were renewed annually and paid into Hitler's Reich. By 1939, 294 million gold Swiss francs had been channeled into the German economy. Schacht's economic priority became the rearmament of Germany. Through the BIS, the Allies had been investing in an economy gearing itself for war. In America, amongst those who saw this danger early on, was Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau. He shared with his president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a suspicion of the banking community. There was a considerable feeling against Wall Street at that time on the part of the new Democratic Party, which formed itself around Roosevelt. It was the first time in some years that the Secretary of the Treasury had not been a banker. Morgenthau was 
loyal to the president to a nth degree, and they had a remarkably close personal relationship. But um, he uh, didn't understand the uh, intricacies of international finance, uh, foreign exchange. The principal concern of everybody was getting out of the depression. The international fear of a war coming in Europe was was there in some people, but it was not a predominant feeling uh, in uh, political circles. But Morgenthau was always watching American trade with Germany. Even though he was a, a political person, uh, I believe in many cases his principles came first. Uh, as as far as Nazi Germany was concerned, uh, uh, nothing uh, moved him more deeply than his hatred of uh, Nazi Germany because of what it stood for. Morgenthau felt uh, that uh, we shouldn't cooperate in any way with a country of that kind. But I don't think this ever occurred to people who, who dealt with them uh, in terms of their international financial. When in the spring of 1938 the Nazis annexed Austria, Morgenthau's fears that the BIS could be used as a tool of imperialism proved right. One of Germany's first acts was to demand that the gold held in Austria's name at the BIS be transferred to the vaults of Hitler's Reichsbank. The BIS, a servant of its central banks, dutifully transferred 22 tons of gold. They were interested in maximizing the profits of their commercial banks, carrying out financial policies and economic policies of uh, their countries. They probably didn't think it was in their province uh, to uh, have, have be, be guided in any way uh, by uh, the nature of the country that they were dealing with. On the 16th of March, 1939, Montague Norman was still espousing the virtues of the BIS. The BIS, whose monthly meetings in Switzerland provide invaluable opportunities of contact, started in the difficult times of 1930, but already has fully shown its worth and will surely prove it in the future. As he spoke, Hitler's troops were occupying Czechoslovakia. Again, the Nazis demanded Czechoslovakia's gold, just as they had done with Austria's. But this time, there was a problem. Much of Czechoslovakia's gold had been shipped to a safe haven, the Bank of England. Unfortunately, some of it was in a BIS account at the bank. Nazis wanted to take over the Czech gold to bolster their foreign income. I was told the governor and his senior colleagues were had up at pistol point 
and said, if you don't authorize this uh, transshipment of the gold, um, you've had it. The directors of Czechoslovakia's National Bank were ordered to contact the BIS and demand that their BIS gold be transferred to the Reichsbank. Because the gold was in England, the BIS called Britain's Central Bank and informed Montague Norman at the Bank of England of the Czech instruction. Like the BIS, Norman saw no way of stopping the transfer. But by the rules of the BIS, Montague Norman had the power to delay the transfer if he did so by the end of the day when all banking transactions had to be completed. But Norman took no action, and six million pounds worth of gold was credited to the Reichsbank. When the Bank of England's actions became known, they caused uproar in the Houses of Parliament. The Bank of England, after what has happened, may no longer be looked upon as the safest place in the world, and the phrase, safe as the Bank of England, may no longer apply. The Bank for International Settlements is the bank which sanctions the most notorious outrage of this generation, the rape of Czechoslovakia. In Washington, Morgenthau and his team tried to piece together the Czech gold affair. The Treasury had a lot of information and contacts uh, coming in from these five or six top Treasury people in the embassies. The one in London, whose name was Butterworth, was, knew everybody in the banking community in London and knew his business, and uh, his reports were important. Well, you've read Butterworth's cable on Czech gold. When you boil it all down, this is what I get out of it. That almost six million pounds of BIS gold was transferred. It's of interest to us because a year ago we took the position that might happen and we didn't want to deal with the BIS. Well, it's a dirty business, whichever way you look at it. By that summer, Europe was preparing for war. In Basel, the BIS took its own actions to protect itself and appointed a neutral to head its bank. An American banker based in London, Thomas McKittrick. Mr. McKittrick came from Lee Higginson in London. He did tell me how much he enjoyed life in London, uh, where he had a maid who ironed his pajamas every night, uh, and I think he had the butler warm the uh, times uh, before he read it, but... Uh, that's life of the upper classes in London, I guess. I think he was uh, regarded as somebody who was a placeholder. You put a man who's an, a, an American, a neutral, uh, B, just trying to uh, keep the place uh, alive. McKittrick was a lawyer, not an economist. And his main job was keeping the bank intact as an institution. He was uh, an expert on flowers, and uh, he and I used to go walking in the mountains, and he taught me about botany. I knew nothing. I became quite a little expert. <laughs> he had a quiet sense of humor, but he was, you know, all that you'd expect an uncle to be. 
With the invasion of Poland, war in Europe broke out. and then Belgium fell, the Reichsbank looted their gold, giving Hitler more money for more weapons, for more war. Some of that gold found its way to the BIS. British and French soldiers were being driven back to Dunkirk, the Bank of England's position did not change on the BIS. Its constitution gave it diplomatic immunity. In June 1940, the citizens of Paris learned of their country's defeat. When Paris fell in 1940, uh, I decided that it was time to uh, get out of Basel. Either the war would be uh, short and the Germans would win, in which case I wouldn't want to be there, or the war would be long, and uh, in which case I wouldn't want to be there. And my wife was uh, pregnant, uh, and so we went to one doctor, an older man, and he said, don't travel. So we went to his nephew, a younger uh, obstetrician, he said, travel. So as is often the case, if you get two conflicting opinions, you take the one you want. It made clear to the staff that if anybody wanted to go back to their country, uh, the maximum effort to get them there would be made. And as far as I know, only one couple left, and she was expecting a baby any day. They were the Kindlebergers, Charles Kindleberger and his wife, who played very good bridge, by the way. McKittrick officially suspended board meetings for the duration of the war. He and the economic advisor of the bank went to live at Rougemont, 100 miles from Basel. A friend of his owned the castle, and McKittrick had permission to use it. I went and counted the number of beds in the servants' wing, and there were 22. And we had a staff of six, plus one chauffeur. During the war, enemy nationals were ordered not to fraternize. But at the BIS, old friendships died hard. A technical show was made of keeping the Allies on one side and the Germans on the other side. But of course it never worked out. They just sort of mixed up and walked across the room and said, Now, Hans, how did you get on when you were doing and had your new baby come and all these things? And, you know, you wouldn't have known a war was on. Even after America's entry into the war in December 1941, McKittrick's presidency of the bank went unchallenged by Nazi officials. More disturbingly, reports were coming through to Washington that Montague Norman and his good friend, Yalmar Schacht, now Reich's minister without portfolio, were making contact about a separate peace. 
On July the 25th, 1942, Roosevelt cabled Churchill. I think the Prime Minister should know that from a Madrid source, word is being sent that Montague Norman is establishing contacts with Schacht with regard to peace feelers. Winston Churchill to Eden, 26th of July. Foreign Secretary, I cannot believe such a thing. That either you should see him or I. Eden to Churchill, 29th of July. Prime Minister, I have seen Montague Norman, who states emphatically that he has had no communication of any kind with Schacht for more than a year. Churchill to Eden, 31st of July. Foreign Secretary, we have been at war for over two and three quarter years. Can he extend his assurance to cover the whole period? No assurance to Churchill appears in the file. Nevertheless, Eden cabled Washington, insisting that no contact had taken place between Schacht and Norman during the war. Without documentation, it isn't possible to know definitely whether they were in touch. Meanwhile, in public, McKittrick went through the facade of addressing the annual meetings of the BIS in an empty boardroom to prove that the BIS board was not sitting in time of war. But away from the public gaze, McKittrick maintained contact with the board members and Nazi, Italian, Japanese and British staff of the BIS continued to meet and do business. Throughout the war, Germany was drawing dividends on its investments in the bank, including those of some of the countries it had conquered. It has been said that foreign exchange control is like sex. It's a very difficult thing to enforce. Uh, and I suppose you could go to another level and say that where an obvious profit exists anywhere, it's very difficult to prevent people from taking advantage of it. There's a drive beneath for sex or profit. The staff of the BIS also enjoyed travel privileges courtesy of the Axis powers. In 1942, BIS President Thomas McKittrick set off for the United States. Astonishingly, he returned in May 1943 via Rome with the permission of the fascist authorities, despite the fact that Italy was at war with his native America. My father went up to Sweden. Oh, I think that was about 43. He went through Germany, and of course he always saw uh, Mr. Poole, the Reichsbank. He asked Poole to let him go to England, and Poole said, oh, yes, do go to England. In fact, it would be very good for the BIS if you did. Poole was definitely for keeping relations with the central banks as intact as possible. He certainly sent messages to Norman through my father, saying, I hope you're all right and that you, know, you haven't been robbed or something like that. 
American intelligence also later indicated that Poole met with McKittrick to discuss attitudes in America towards Germany and that McKittrick even traveled to Germany in 1943. The apparent closeness of the BIS's relationship with the Axis powers was viewed with alarm by a growing team of U.S. Treasury investigators. When I went to work there in the fall of 42, there may have been 14, 20 lawyers and about 100 investigators and maybe 100 auxiliary personnel. And it ended up in a, a, a very large outfit of two or 3,000 people. We were, I guess, very idealistic people. We felt that when young men and women were risking their lives and being killed in the mud in Italy, they deserved better from the folks at home and from their government. The British Treasury took a different view on the BIS. The Bank of England was continuing to receive interest from the Reichsbank on pre-war investments in Germany through the BIS. Now the Nazis had the looted gold from occupied Europe to help make the payments. In the summer of 1944, Edward Playfair defended Britain's position. Nothing has happened to make us change our views, which are wholly different from those of the United States Treasury. It seems to me important that we should not just sit back and appear to accept their view as the right one. I saw it estimated that Axis Europe was paying around £760,000 a year in interest to the BIS and getting one-third of it back as dividends. We get the rest. Fair's approach may have made sense from a pragmatic point of view, but the U.S. Treasury took a stronger moral line. They objected to any institution that aided the Germans in any way. Anything that we could do to, to discredit an institution which cooperated with Germany uh, was, was something the Treasury uh, wanted support. By 1944, the U.S. Treasury had a massive dossier detailing the collaborative activities of the BIS. And when the Norwegian government in exile made a formal protest about the BIS's activities, Morgenthau was ready to make his move. At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. They will work in the seclusion of this White Mountains resort. The Norwegians uh, had a good deal of information, and it was they who introduced the resolution at the Bretton Woods Conference that the BIS should be shut down uh, as soon as possible. Morgenthau was, was, was impressed with this. He had talked to the Norwegians, and he was uh, uh, impressed and convinced that this was a desirable resolution. But not all the delegates at Bretton Woods were so convinced. Representing the view of the Bank of England and British Treasury, economist Maynard Keynes went to see Morgenthau 
and in an off-the-record meeting, argued that the BIS should not be closed down since the bank would be needed for post-war reconstruction. Keynes wanted to delay it. He wanted to keep this organization, which the European bankers and central bankers thought was very valuable. Morgenthau felt that he had convinced Keynes that the BIS ought to be shut down, but Keynes had some reservations as to how to do it and what the resolution should read. Keynes persuaded Morgenthau that the BIS should be closed only after the war had ended. While the debate over the BIS raged at Bretton Woods, the tide of war had turned against the Nazis. Allied troops had invaded Northern Europe. Within 11 weeks, they had taken Paris. Harsh treatment was meted out to the Parisians who had collaborated with the enemy. But when Morgenthau sent a treasury agent to Paris with the liberating forces, he discovered unpleasant truths about the extent of the collaboration. In December 1944, a report arrived on his desk about the activities of the Paris branch of the Chase, one of the biggest banks in America. The Chase Paris showed itself most anxious to please the German authorities in every possible way. For example, the Chase zealously maintained the account of the German embassy in Paris, as every little thing helps. The whole objective of the Chase policy and operation was to maintain the position of the bank at any cost. I recommend that this investigation should be pressed urgently, and additional personnel be sent to Paris ASAP. In New York, Treasury agent Marjorie Faber was assigned to investigate the Chase Bank. It had been requested by the Treasury that Chase make available all its correspondence with Paris, and I was sent there to look at it. There had been some rumors about the Chase Bank cooperating with the German industry, so perhaps that was the reason why, but anyway, that was what I was supposed to look into, whether there was anything behind it or not. In the course of her investigations, Marjorie Faber discovered a worrying truth. In 1941, decrees were announced in France, restricting the freedom of Jews. The Chase Paris took a controversial measure. They jumped the gun. They, they broached the question, well, if that's the case, perhaps we shouldn't let the, the depositors, who are Jewish, uh, who deposit in Paris, we shouldn't let them take their money out either. These measures taken against Jews by the Chase Paris occurred while America was at peace with Germany. A later report contextualized the actions of the Chase Paris, saying that the Chase had received a notice of the freezing of Jewish assets and believed the freeze was legally binding. The same report also confirmed that a leading member of staff of the Chase Paris had made the most of his opportunities of being nice to the German officials. U.S. Treasury investigations also cited other banks in France as having cooperated with the Nazis. One of the banks, I don't remember whether it was Westminster or Barclay, they asked the administrator appointed by the German government whether they should keep the Jewish employees. Maybe they should throw them out or get rid of them one way or another. And his answer was, I really don't care. He's go by French regulations. I have none. 
Now, they didn't have to ask that, obviously. The intention was certainly to make a good impression. In fact, a report by Farber names both Westminster and Barclays employees acting beyond the control of their London offices as having volunteered that they had Jewish staff to the Germans. But there is no mention in the report that they took action against Jewish assets as early as the chase. in France had an interest in developing business with the Nazis. It was really a trade-off. They would try to provide uh, uh, services to the Nazis by reason of providing information. Uh, they would seek favor with them and they would receive deposits. Seven French banks and Barclays are being sued for any Jewish assets retained. Only Barclays are not filing to dismiss the action and are committed to returning all assets traced. Imagine having your home taken away, all your possessions, and being left out on the street, and then having your bank account or a safe deposit uh, vault being taken from you. It prohibited you from... Uh, Escaping. Poised on the left bank of the Rhine, day after day and night after night, the air forces went out. When the Allies advanced across the Rhine, they discovered the fate of those who had not been lucky enough to escape. concentration and death camps, it was clear that the Nazis had been stripping even the most intimate assets from their victims. There were even suspicions that the Nazis were using the BIS to convert the looted possessions of camp victims into Swiss francs. I don't think we knew what specifically the BIS was doing, but even without full proof, the U.S. Treasury was convinced that the BIS was assisting the Germans in this process, even down to uh, uh, looting the, the Holocaust victims, the, the teeth and, what, and gold watches and whatnot. American intelligence reports show that the BIS permitted transfers of Nazi gold as late as April 1945. Though no evidence exists that the BIS knew the source of the gold or whether it was concentration camp loot, proof that two BIS directors handled the spoils of the Holocaust was to emerge. In March 1945, Morgenthau sent an investigator to Basel to question McKittrick. I thought you would be interested in the attached memorandum of my conversation with McKittrick in Switzerland. I was surprised that a voluntary recital intended as a defense of the BIS could be such an indictment of that institution. I asked McKittrick why, in his opinion, the Germans had been willing to allow the BIS to run in the manner which he had described. McKittrick's explanation was as follows. There is a little group in Germany who do not share the Nazi point of view. 
but who were so important to the Nazis and the management of German finances that they would continue to hold important positions. I asked McKittrick, would he name any of this little group? The only person he named was Poole. You state uh, your full name. Emil Johann Rudolf Poole. In the following year, BIS director and Reichsbank vice president Emil Poole was tried and convicted of crimes against humanity for his involvement in laundering the gold of murdered Jews from the concentration and death camps. Killing firsthand was not his thing. He was tried primarily for two activities. One was handling the deposit of some of the grisly uh, byproducts of the concentration camps, gold teeth, gold watches, gold pens, gold spectacle cases taken from newly created corpses in the concentration camps. The Reichsbank had vaults full of this stuff, small mountains, really. The second activity was making funds readily available to the SS4 concentration camp building. And Poole, in order to make sure that the state wasn't investing its money foolishly, toured the concentration camps and made sure that they were doing what they were supposed to do. Also tried and convicted was BIS director and Reichsbank president, Walter Funk. You as the head of the Reichsbank would not know. You wouldn't know that. Would you know about the 1,000 wagons of textiles that this SS man said were, had been shipped or warehousing, composed of the clothing of dead Jews who'd been exterminated? In the course of the trials, some other intriguing evidence came to light. Well, I can recall a Dresdner Bank document, which I thought was interesting, which listed American bankers favorable to the German cause. I think that was practically the heading of the document. It was a who's who of American bankers. And the chase was definitely on that list. Oh, yes, the chase was on the list. That was one of the things that caught my eye. As the war drew to a close, Morgenthau had begun to receive reports on Nazi plans for a resurrection of Germany after her defeat, financed by investments in America and other neutral countries. His suspicions about Germany reinforced, he completed a plan which was to remain his notorious footnote in history. The position of Morgenthau and White well, that you shouldn't allow Germany to be reindustrialized. Germany should become a cabbage patch. You could have small shops with and and uh, and grow um, grow crops, but never become uh, an industrial power again. Morgenthau's plan was rejected, and in April 1945, he lost his greatest protector. After the death of President Roosevelt, Morgenthau resigned from public office, and his investigations into the banks and their collaboration with the Nazis were wound down.
further action was taken against the Chase, Barclay, or Westminster banks. And in Basel, the BIS left their old headquarters behind them, but continue to this day to do business as usual. The important thing was to try and arrange for a decent post-war period. I mean, that's what they all saw, whichever side they were on. If you have one institution in Europe, well, you want it to stay working, be important, and really help in the post-war period, and that's what the BIS did. According to the uh, testimony, you said we have fallen into the hands of criminals. Its architect, Yalmar Schacht, had been imprisoned by the Nazis for the last months of the war. Though acquitted at Nuremberg, in 1947, a German court sentenced him to eight years hard labor for war crimes. Telling us who those criminals were. Hitler and seine Genossen. Hitler, you know, is dead. On appeal in 1948, he was acquitted of all charges and set up his own bank. His old friend, Montague Norman, became Lord Norman. He went down in history as the longest-serving governor of the Bank of England. McKittrick resigned from the BIS at the end of the war and returned to America to become vice president of the Chase Bank. Emil Poole was released after serving just four years and seven months in prison. And in 1954, he applied for a visa to America. He gave his visa reference as the Chase Bank. The American Consulate General wrote, commenting on his war crimes record. It should be noted that the Consulate General has, in the course of its examination, found no other grounds which would prevent Mr. Poole from receiving a non-immigrant visa. Mr. Poole is one of the outstanding bankers in Germany and wishes to proceed to the United States on the invitation of several well-known American bankers to participate in discussions of some importance. Documents that might show whether Poole entered the United States remain classified. They were going to be on the right side no matter what happened. Banking is banking. And that these fellows were interested in, 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 in having a nice, peaceful relationship. German, British, didn't matter to them. A nice, peaceful relationship with everybody making money. Those who fought the bankers did not fare so well. Our American way of life, which has flourished under our republic, and the war against Nazism was over. The war against communism had just begun. Forces of communism. These red fascists distort, conceal, misrepresent, and lie to gain their point. Deceit is their very essence. Harry Dexter White. Morgenthau's second-in-command was accused of being a communist. He suffered a fatal heart attack whilst under investigation in 1948. White was only one person on whom self-confessed communist agents... In Other members of Morgenthau's team were also accused, and his administration became tainted with communism. ...were full conspirators. They were all given a, a terrible thrashing by the House on American Committee and years later by McCarthy. Most Mr. Morgan, though, I think, felt 
betrayed. And, of course, I would, um, I was so saddened to see him in the last years of this very great and prominent life in which he had um, earned so many kudos. I was very sad to see him feel that way, and I would say, oh, they never proved anything about this one, and they never proved anything about that one. Uh, it's just that all of these poor people, some of them were the most brilliant economists in the world. Um, their lives were destroyed. Mogenthor spent the last years of his life building up an archive to preserve the truth for future generations. Do the clues to Hitler's tyranny lie in his formative years? Sky Digital viewers can press the red button now and find out more. Did drugs, alcohol, and paranoia fuel the presidency of Richard Nixon? His secret life exposed on UK TV history next. rely on it daily for the latest reports on world and domestic events. A recent study conducted by the Cronkite School of Journalism indicates that nearly 67% of Americans don't trust major media for accurate reporting. Ask Americans specifically why they distrust the media, and the answers are generally vague. After all, reports of news media abuses aren't normally found on the front page or the nightly news. Nonetheless, they do exist. Dateline NBC, a primetime news program, airs a story in 1992 entitled Waiting to Explode. The story includes footage demonstrating that a line of trucks produced by General Motors readily explode on impact. To see for ourselves what might happen in a side impact crash, Dateline NBC hired the Institute for Safety Analysis to conduct crash demonstrations. Unlike GM tests, the fuel tanks were filled with real gasoline. Look what happened. Impact, a small hole was punctured in the tank. According to our experts, the pressure of the collision and the crushing of the gas tank forced gasoline to spew from the gas cap. The fuel then erupted into flames when ignited by the impacting car's headlight. After the program airs, one of the firemen at the taping of the crash contacts GM. The conversation inspires a full-scale investigation. Three months later, NBC is forced to reveal their role in fabricating the news. NBC's contractor did put incendiary devices under the trucks 
weeks to ensure that there would be a fire if gasoline were released from the truck's gas tank. We said the crash, quote, forced gasoline to spew from the fuel cap, end quote. GM says since the gas cap was the wrong cap for the GM filler tube and because the gas tank was overfilled, the cap came off when the impact occurred. We agree with GM that we should have told our viewers about these devices. The Dateline reporter, however, said, quote, at impact, a small hole was punctured in the tank, unquote. GM has now x-rayed that tank and found no hole. We acknowledge the placing of the incendiary devices under the truck was a bad idea from start to finish. That's our new policy, and we'll be right back. After the 1995 bombing of the Murrah Federal Building, information came to light that contradicted government claims disseminated through the mainstream media. One source was Carol Howe, a government informant. She revealed that federal agencies had prior knowledge of the terrorist plot and were ignoring several figures linked to the bombing. Roger Charles is a retired Marine colonel and former correspondent at ABC News. His news team interviewed Howe and obtained confirmation of her testimony. So here we had confirmation from a government representative in Denver with the McVeigh Prosecution Task Force saying, your facts are accurate. So we think we've got a slam dunk story. It will be a piece of cake to get it on air now because we have confirmation from a government spokeswoman that our facts are true. The story was ready to air on ABC Evening News, but to Charles' surprise, the story never ran. A few minutes later, a phone rang. Tom Gerald from ABC 2020 was on the phone to Thrasher saying the story had been killed for the evening. Didn't know why, but the decision in New York was not to run the story on it. Peter Jennings' nightly news that night. In order for the story to air, Charles reworked it following suggestions from New York. Well, the next morning, Don Thrasher gets a call from New York, and he gives me one of these. I couldn't believe it. I knew what the signal was. The story was not going to go again. In 1990, an age-old conflict in the Balkans erupted into civil war. A multi-sided and complicated overseas struggle was packaged by the mainstream media as a tidy melodrama. The predominantly Christian Serbs were cast as the villains. A key maneuver employed to demonize them involved a photo shoot. The news has always been used to stampede our reason with a, a perception and emotion. When you're talking about war, you get those heart-tugging appeals to pity in particular, and we've seen that again using images. Benjamin Works, president of the Strategic Issues Research Institute, is a military affairs analyst for Fox News and CNN. He recalls the emergency shelters set up by the Serbs to accommodate Bosnian refugees. I remember very vividly seeing tours by the camp commander showing the mess hall, showing food that, you know, I wouldn't pay money for, but I'd eat, gladly eat if it were free. And yet this was turned into a sensational story about a concentration camps. And the propaganda twist on that came out of both the electronic media and the newspapers and very glaring covers on Time magazine and such. 
Judgment, an independent expose, reveals how a British film crew photographed a Bosnian emergency shelter to look like a Nazi concentration camp. The film crew positioned themselves inside a barbed wire enclosure to shoot out at refugees who were free to come and go as they pleased. The camera zeroed in on a refugee whose emaciated appearance was the result of a birth defect. We found that all of these uh, allegations of a concentration camp were, were really frauds perpetrated by the reporters and in fact at least one, Roy Gutman, won a Pulitzer Prize for this kind of fabrication. And the image that helped motivate American involvement in an overseas entanglement was a total fake. something of a Chinese wall between the media pros and uh, the newsmakers. That's been blurred, particularly by the administration, which has deliberately cultivated media personalities who are now present as guests at White House state dinners. And they don't seem to see any, uh, any compromise of ethics or any uh, conflict of interest in that. The executives, the editors in print media, uh, the uh, senior producers, executive producers in the visual media. Um, these are the people that have the ideological bias and what's probably almost as important, the personal friendships. They go to the same country clubs, they go to the same dinners, they socialize with a lot of the people that they cover. And yet this is where corruption sets in any system. when. The censors and the, and the monitors become friendly with the people they monitor. That's when, that's when standards fly out the window. Today, standards in mainstream news reporting have more to do with career enhancement than reporting the truth. Of course, to get ahead in a bureaucracy by giving the boss what he wants, that's how you get ahead. So again, that is indicative of why there's so much homogenization in the media. You know, if you wanted to look at a pyramid, and the first couple layers, the really eager, hard-working young journalists are out there trying to get the stories, trying to make a name so they can move up that pyramid. Well, they move up the pyramid, uh, the more they realize that, you know, the outlets really aren't interested in major news that rocks the boat. The boat Charles refers to belongs to those at the top of the pyramid. 
where the interests of the media outlets are quietly defined. The year is 1917, and Representative Oscar Calloway enters a disturbing statement into the U.S. congressional record. The statement reveals why J.P. Morgan interests hired 12 high-ranking news managers. The 12 were asked to determine the most influential newspapers in America. They were to figure out how many news organizations it would take to control generally the policy of the daily press of the United States. The 12 found it was only necessary to purchase the control of 25 of the greatest papers. An agreement was reached. The policy of the papers was bought and an editor was placed at each paper to ensure that all published information was in keeping with the new policy. Soon, that policy would be defined by a front group formed by J.P. Morgan and his colleagues. In fact, Morgan's personal attorney was founding president of the organization, the Council on Foreign Relations. Today, the CFR maintains that its goal is to increase America's understanding of the world. However, the actual objective of this highly exclusive club is revealed by the rare admissions of the insiders themselves. In the early 60s, a Georgetown University professor collects information for a book favorable to the network of powerful men who founded the CFR. For two years, Professor Carol Quigley is allowed to examine the confidential papers and secret records of this network. Quigley reveals that these men aim to create a world system of financial control in private hands, able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. In short, they seek total and quiet control of the entire world and the CFR is their most visible conduit for carrying out that agenda. CFR members include America's wealthiest tycoons, as well as the highly placed elite in government, academic institutions, tax-exempt foundations, and the establishment media. Ruling Class Journalists, written by Richard Harwood, describes the CFR membership as the ruling establishment in the United States. The Washington Post article boasted that news reporters who are CFR members do not merely analyze and interpret foreign policy for the United States. They help make it. Are these policymakers? Many of their faces are familiar. NBC's Tom Brokaw, CBS's Dan Rather, ABC's Barbara Walters, Jim Lehrer of PBS, William F. Buckley of National Review, media mogul Rupert Murdoch, owner of the giant multifaceted news corporation. These media heavyweights, and many others like them, are members of the CFR. Powerful corporations are also invited to become members. At the close of the 20th century, CFR influence presided over far-reaching consolidations of media control. In 1995, CFR members Michael Eisner of Disney and ABC's Thomas Murphy merged their media empires. Soon after the merger, the Disney-ABC empire becomes a CFR corporate member.
In the year 2000, the world's largest Internet service provider, America Online, joins forces with Time Warner, one of the world's largest news organizations. The CEOs favoring the move are CNN's Thomas Johnson and Time Warner's Gerald Levin, both CFR members. Once again, another media giant is created under the shadow of CFR influence. Today, an elite handful of individuals define the agendas that are supported by the empire of establishment news. CFR's strongest media allies is the New York Times. As a major outlet for the establishment viewpoint, the Times has achieved dominant influence over the reporting of national and international news. The Times is relied upon by many editors in the mainstream news media for direction on how to portray world events. In addition, the Times Wire Service retails the establishment line to subsidiary outlets such as broadcast news distributors and regional newspapers. Competition between these outlets rests primarily on the style of regurgitating the same message. Americans received much of their news about life in the Soviet Union from Walter Duranty, the New York Times' man in Moscow. Duranty's articles filled the front pages with gripping stories from Mother Russia. During that period, Joseph Stalin was consolidating power over the captive nations that formed the Soviet Union. One step in that drive called for the forced relocation of millions of Ukrainians. Observing these events on the scene was British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. He witnessed the loading of thousands of Ukrainians into boxcars. They were being deported to barren regions of the Soviet Union. This program of Stalin's alone accounted for more than one million deaths. This is the most terrible thing I've ever seen. Precisely because of the deliberation with which it was done, and the total absence of even any kind of sympathy. Durante's articles in the New York Times sharply contradicted Muggeridge's reports. Durante went out of his way to dismiss them as bunk or sheer absurdity. During the deliberate famine of 1932 to 1933, more than 7 million Ukrainians perished when Stalin seized their entire grain crop for export. Still in a March 1933 article, Durante insisted there is no actual starvation or deaths from starvation, but there is widespread mortality from diseases due to malnutrition. That was when his reporting was particularly disgraceful because he denied that there was any famine. And we used to wonder whether, in fact, the authorities hadn't got some kind of hold over him because he so utterly played their game. But it didn't uh, worry the New York Times who featured his reports. Ultimately, the cover-up of Stalin's crimes helped the communist regime gain diplomatic recognition from the United States. 
William F. Jasper is a senior editor for the New American Magazine. The Soviet Union, like every communist country, has what was a, an economic basket case. It could not uh, produce enough to survive. And so every communist uh, social state has been dependent upon aid from uh, the capitalist producing states. So Russia was desperate for uh, our aid, both in terms of direct government aid, but also in terms of opening up the spigots for the private capital markets, particularly New York uh, uh, bankers and, and corporations, to move into Russia in a big way. In 1933, the Roosevelt administration invited a Soviet representative to Washington to negotiate terms of diplomatic recognition. For his news correspondence during the previous year, Durante would receive the Pulitzer Prize. Another Times correspondent, Herbert Matthews, also covered for collectivism. During the so-called Spanish Civil War in the late 1930s, communists throughout Spain brutally massacred more than 6,000 priests, friars, and nuns. Matthews' dispatches, however, depicted the communists as idealistic Democrats seeking to liberate Spain from tyranny. No mention was made of the communist atrocities. Later, when the Times assigned Matthews to report on Cuba, he crafted an image of an obscure revolutionary as a romantic hero supported by thousands of Cubans. Matthew's stories set the stage for a campaign to bring Fidel Castro to power. As other observers noted, Castro got his job through the New York Times. Meanwhile, Matthew's reports assured Americans that Castro definitely was not a communist. After seizing power, Castro began eliminating all potential internal opposition. Firing squads operated day and night. Matthew's reaction to Castro's slaughtering was callous. Youth must sow its wild oats. Despite his blatantly pro-communist reporting, the Times kept Matthews on staff for over 45 years. The establishment media's backing of Matthews and Durante points to the existence of a larger policy to legitimize communism. Communism is the most absolute form of government, the highest concentration of government. And so you actually have in the communist system a rule by an oligarchic few, a rule by an elite. That is precisely what the Council on Foreign Relations insiders have been pushing for in this country and throughout the world throughout the past century. Uh, so there is a natural uh, uh, confluence of interest there, not a antagonism between the communists and uh, the uh, internationalists here in our government. They are both after the same thing. The elite, however, occasionally have a difficult time ruling themselves. At a 1991 closed-door meeting of fellow internationalists, billionaire and former CFR chairman David Rockefeller praised his media allies. But his confidence that his words would not leave the room was later broken. We are grateful to the Washington Post and the New York Times 
Time Magazine and other publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject to the right lights of publicity. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. Redirecting the bright lights of publicity is not the media's only contribution towards such a plan. Up next, discover how support for world government is generated as we examine some of the biggest stories in recent decades. The disturbing truth begins behind the big news. occurring around the world every day, the media simply can't report on all of them. But like the Times slogan, all the news that's fit to print, the mainstream media implies that they can be depended on to report what is significant. What isn't made clear is exactly who or what dictates which events are newsworthy and which are not. This form of media censorship has proved catastrophic to American interests. of the Vietnam War, North Vietnamese leaders gambled on a bold strategy to achieve a decisive military victory in South Vietnam. Communist strategists believed a general offensive could trigger a civilian uprising and force America to abandon the war. Instead of their traditional hit-and-run guerrilla tactics, they massed their forces for a major confrontation with American and South Vietnamese units. On January 30, 1968, under the cover of a truce for the Vietnamese New Year, or Tet, communist forces launched a well-coordinated nationwide attack on South Vietnamese cities. The Tet Offensive had begun. Although caught by surprise, American forces responded quickly and effectively to the attack. force Viet Cong were literally wiped out as a threat in South Vietnam. What was left of the communist forces from the north retreated across the borders. The Tet Offensive turned out to be a communist failure and a huge U.S. military victory. In America, however, media reports of the Tet Offensive communicated a much different message. The battle for Hue has taken an odd turn here. Americans were led to believe that the escalation in fighting proved that America, like the French, could not win in Vietnam. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. But it is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. Even retired President Lyndon Johnson expressed anger over the misleading reports. Immediately, 
in the wall and said, let's get out. And that's what Ho Chi Minh had been trying to do all the time, was to uh, uh, win in Washington what he had won in Paris. To win in this country, um, in the homes of this country, what he could not win from the men out there that represented us. Communist leader and Viet Cong former Minister of Justice, Trung Nhu Tang, later confirmed the U.S. media's critical role in determining the outcome of the war. After the Tet Offensive, what we lost on the military front, we won on the diplomatic and psychological fronts. Above all, on the fourth front, the mass media, the press, television. We have just had, I've been advised, some film in from the defense. Even after three decades, the performance of the American press hasn't changed much. In 1998, America's attention was focused on scandal in the Oval Office. Public concern over this new round of suspected Clinton wrongdoings finally pushed Congress to act. However, news coverage implied that purely mean-spirited partisanship motivated the proceedings. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. Suddenly, for the first time since Richard Nixon, a United States president faced the strong possibility of impeachment. Yet only a handful of viewers would learn the actual reasons why. Months before the Lewinsky scandal broke, Congress began investigating a scandal that had become known as China Gate. Evidence suggested that the Clinton administration had compromised U.S. security in order to finance its re-election campaign. The communist government of China was eager to acquire sensitive U.S. military technology and economic concessions. Through international money laundering, China funneled contributions into U.S. election campaigns and obtained privileged access to top U.S. officials. The communist money trail led all the way up to the Oval Office. If these facts were widely publicized, Clinton would face impeachment on grounds of bribery, and perhaps even treason. It was wrong. But the media misdirected public attention. Americans were told over and over again in a thousand different ways that the only real complaints against Clinton were that he lied about sex. Yet more than a dozen of Clinton's appointees, business associates, and close friends were convicted of felonies since he assumed office in 1993. Many others implicated in the Chinagate scandal invoked the Fifth Amendment or fled the country altogether. William Norman Grigg is a senior editor for the New American magazine. If Bill Clinton had been forced out of office as a result of the Lewinsky scandal, the damage would have been limited to him. And he was disposable to that extent. But if there had been serious attention paid in Congress and by the public to the implications of the Chinagate bribery treason scandal, there was a whole host of institutions, vital to the power elite, that would have been implicated. The media cover-up of Chinagate was not simply to 
protect Bill Clinton. It was to protect the larger agenda that Bill Clinton had facilitated. That was the transfer of enormous technology, critical military technology to communist China. treatment to an unknown governor from a southern state. One of Jimmy Carter's favorite themes was that if he were elected, he would bring new faces and new ideas to Washington. He repeatedly told audiences that he was not beholden to the Washington and New York-based establishment that had been running things for so long. At a Boston rally, Carter said, The people of this country know from bitter experience that we are not going to get these changes merely by shifting around the same group of insiders. Insiders have had their chance, and they have not delivered. After Carter was elected, however, he quickly forgot his promise of new faces and ideas. His administration was packed with individuals from the same crowd of insiders that had been running things for decades. For National Security Advisor, Carter selected Big New Brzezinski, a board member of the CFR. Brzezinski inducted Carter into the establishment shortly before the media helped boost Carter's status to national prominence. Actually said that President of the John Birch Society, and that's John F. McManus. Uh, the Democrats are out, the Republicans are in, the Republicans are out, the Democrats are in, and the socialistic uh, uh, internationalist program, the pro-UN attitude, continues. The American people are the losers. They are not being given the proper alternatives. And it's the job of the media to do that kind of thing. We like to think, and people in the media like to think, that they're the ones that dig out the real issues and so forth. They don't. They don't dig out the real issues. They, 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 there are some areas that are off limits. You're not allowed to get into those things, such as the famous televised debate with uh, Clinton and his Democratic opponents at the primary season in 1992. Here he was, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, just like George Bush, but none of the opponents of Clinton for the Democrat nomination would bring it up. Stongas, Kerry, Harkin, Jesse Jackson, Douglas Wilder, they, it was ground that they would not touch, nor would the media touch, and it was a perfectly good issue. From World War II to the present, the establishment has maintained its locked grip on the presidency. The subservient media keeps such information from becoming news. saying often regarding mainstream news implies that violent or catastrophic reports are peddled as top stories water. and the two planes collide horrific or dramatic events alone create strong emotional responses 
Add to that sweeping statements that stir public fear. The police can't stop it. Reports of war, nuclear threats, natural disasters, scandals, and murders often filled the daily news for reasons other than to inform. Preying upon fears viewers have concerning death and destruction is so frequently practiced by major news that most viewers are desensitized to the actual intent of the reports themselves. Good evening. There are new and dire predictions tonight about the future of our planet. Around the world, glaciers are in full retreat. Some, like the ancient ice cap on Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, could be gone in a decade or two. It's a dramatic symptom of the warming of the Earth, detailed in a new thousand-page United Nations report, Climate Change 2001. It predicts the new century will bring, and I quote, large-scale and possibly irreversible changes affecting every last person on Earth. Today's population has already set off an environmental spiral, depleting the world's forests and contributing to overfishing and overgrazing. Soil is being eroded, which in turn is hurting crop production, leading to starvation. This is punishment, say scientists, for sins of the past, the end result of years of pollution, wildfires year-round in California. That 500-year flood that devastated Grand Forks, North Dakota, occurring every five years. Greenhouse gases that stay in the atmosphere a hundred years after they're released. It is a doomsday scenario detailed in a report sponsored by the United Nations. Sweltering summers, rising sea levels, more droughts, more violent storms. Global warming is real, the new report declares, and humans are helping to cause it. By creating a, a, a crisis or a perception of crisis, you accomplish several things. First of all, people in a, in a crisis do not think rationally. People in a crisis uh, look around and, and say, geez, we have to do something. Uh, something is, is upon us. And so in a, in a panic atmosphere, crisis atmosphere, people are willing to uh, accept more stringent controls. No matter what the current news-hyped crises may be, the proposed solution by mainstream news remains consistent. Global warming is real, and it's something that, that uh, needs to be taken into account uh, very seriously in, in policy decisions. And the emissions are a policy question. If we don't move now, any chances that we have for conserving the environment, maintaining political stability, or offering opportunities to individuals will be totally washed away in the extraordinary load of so many people. China, the world's most populated country, now controls the phenomenon by demanding that couples produce just one child, with harsh penalties for those who fail to comply. Most countries agree family planning should be a top priority. The UN begins setting the next decade's priorities on population. Global warming, uh, ozone depletion, overpopulation, uh, deforestation, biodiversity, all of these are being presented as global crises, the equivalent of war, the things that demand uh, uh, immediate uh, action for survival. In fact, we're told global survival is at stake here. And in each of these cases, we're told these are global crises that cannot be handled at the local and national level. They, require, they are global crises that require global solutions. Today, Americans are told global warming will destroy the planet. However, only a few decades ago, they were told that the planet would be destroyed by a more chilling crisis. 
scientists are telling us now is that the threat of an ice age is not as remote as they once thought. If we are unprepared for the next advance, the result could be hunger and death on a scale unprecedented in all of history. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. Just as global crises are trumpeted as reasons to centralize government power, the media also manipulates local events to serve that goal as well. Take, for example, the gun. It's what the media blames for an epidemic of violence in our own backyard. In almost every story having to do with violence, the presence of a gun is the villain. Tragedies such as the shootings at Columbine are exploited to convince the public that the gun itself is to be more feared than those misusing it. The debate is just taught until gun violence happens to you. Investigative Reports airs on the Arts and Entertainment Network. This news program represents one of the many media formats that routinely insinuate that because guns are available, there is violence. Every 20 seconds, a handgun is manufactured in the United States. And every two minutes, another person is shot. Leaving us all to ask, when, when will the bloodshed end? But the media does not blame gun manufacturers alone for the violence. All those who possess firearms must share in the guilt. Responsible gun owners and those using guns recklessly or to commit crimes are lumped together in a single group. Notice how investigative reports edits footage together to insinuate that hunters are linked to urban street violence. There is a war on the streets that is killing our children. Ultimately, the media supports a revolutionary campaign to abolish the right to keep and bear arms. Further complicating the lives of police officers is a new issue, the arming of the general public. Gun violence has increased dramatically in every sector of our society, but most alarmingly, with children. As a culture of violence persists, its backlash has teens caught in a crossfire. With so many guns in the hands of mostly untrained civilians, officers have no idea what they might face when they respond to a call. It's a recipe for disaster. The media's message is clear. Americans will be a lot better off without guns. The expression gun control is dishonest because we're not talking about controlling guns so much as we're talking about controlling the law-abiding segment of our population. The defining characteristic of a criminal, after all, is that he does not obey the laws, and gun control laws are no exception. Anytime you have a measure which has the effect of disarming the law-abiding, you're giving criminals a competitive advantage over the law-abiding segment of our population. And the media doesn't 
display much of any interest in reporting what happens in those instances where criminals go into an encounter with a citizen with the serene confidence that the citizen has been disarmed. That's a story the media just does not want to tell. The mainstream media continues to portray the arrest of Rodney King as a gang of racist police beating a black victim. It began, as we remember, after white policemen were seen on videotape beating a black man named Rodney King. Well, four white police officers in the beating of black motorist Rodney King. Captured by chance on home video, the arrest quickly became a national sensation. In the months that followed, the establishment media hyped this local event to the point that many Americans considered it to represent police behavior nationwide. This could be any one of 20 major cities or more in the country. It's a time bomb that's ticking under the foundations of America's major cities and under our country itself. To curb police brutality across the nation. The verdict of not guilty for King's arresting officers served as the match that lit the fuse. Instantly, the media implied that the jury was a bunch of redneck racists. We do have a society which is still racist. A mostly white jury in rural Simi Valley cannot have any appreciation of what black people in south-central Los Angeles go through when dealing with the Los Angeles Police Department. There the man was on the ground, covering up toward the end, being beaten in to insensitivity. And this all-white jury decided that the police were the good guys. Yet the testimony of 58 witnesses and over 200 exhibits presented at the trial revealed to the jury much of what the media kept hidden. King attracted highway patrol attention because he was driving recklessly at speeds of up to 115 miles per hour. His arrest culminated an eight-mile chase in which he cut across numerous lanes of expressway traffic and ran red lights. King was a convicted felon, out on parole for armed robbery. There were two other black passengers in King's car, but they cooperated with the officers, were handcuffed, and later released without incident. King was under the influence of drugs and alcohol. King initially ignored police orders to step out of the car. When he did come out, he began acting erratically, dancing around. Then he shook his backside in a lewd gesture at a female police officer. Ignoring officers' demands to get down on the ground, King was tackled by four officers. He rose up and threw off the officers. An officer attempted to subdue King with a stun gun. But even the taser darts fired at King failed to keep this out-of-control 260-pound man down. At this point, the arrest was recorded on home video. Like the jury, you were about to witness the first few seconds that the media carefully avoided broadcasting. King is seen rising up and charging one of the arresting officers. The response of the officers is history. Although people may look at the same evidence and disagree with the verdict, the fact remains the media withheld critical information from the American people in order to make the facts fit the story it wanted to tell. The story implies that local law enforcement is a failed institution and that radical changes are needed.
There's certainly nothing new about the drive to federalize control of local police. This is something that goes back decades. The major media have succeeded to a shocking extent in creating an impression for the general public that local police are not to be supported, not to be trusted, they are to be feared, and that on the other hand, we can trust implicitly in the federal law enforcement agencies who will come into our communities and protect us against the local police. Local police exist to protect the rights and the liberties and the property of the law abiding, and they are accountable to the communities that they serve. National police, on the other hand, would exist to protect the interests of the state and the political elite that controls the state. tactics of revolutionaries is to orchestrate the illusion of popular support for their agendas. Media cooperation is essential to give life to the illusion. We have had so many fooled by the smoke and mirrors they use. The gun lobby is strong. They are organized and they are scary. Enough of their tactics. Our buying votes with blood money. Marketed as the Million Mom March, a publicity stunt created by gun disarmament advocates takes shape at the nation's capital. Women and their families will push for gun safety in what they call the Million Mom March. Weeks before the march actually took place, the media reports served as invitations for support and participation in the anti-gun agenda. Dan, this mom's march is going to bring enormous pressure on Congress. Now to the emotional issue of gun control in the United States. The nation's capital is preparing for a demonstration against gun violence. Organizing the ostensibly spontaneous march was Donna Dees Thomas's. Americans were told that Dees Thomases was a mere suburban housewife and political novice who was shocked into action after watching the televised aftermath of a shooting at a daycare center. This portrayal of her background was repeated uniformly throughout the establishment media. Women to watch, a suburban mother whose life has been changed by the gun debate, how she became a political activist, where that's led. That's a surprise to her friends, and even to her. Here's NBC's Lisa Myers. Donna D. Thomas is a suburban mom, too busy with her two daughters and a part-time job to pay much attention to politics. Describes herself as apathetic. No one ever turns out for rallies about gun control. That's what you were told? Please told. Undaunted, she decided to set up the march herself. What's the biggest thing you've ever organized before? Um, a carpool. In reality, Dees Thomases is a political veteran, a former congressional staffer and publicist for the CBS News. She is a shrewd, well-connected player for the media elite. Despite the prolonged, heavily financed and national anti-gun effort, the Million Mom March fell far short of its name. However, the low attendance didn't stop the media from promoting the illusion of a nationwide demand for more gun laws. The media are trying to create the illusion that there is this massive outpouring of public support for disarming civilians in this country in the name of public safety, but this is an illusion. It's a carefully cultivated illusion, and it's intended to advance an agenda supported and promoted by the elite that controls the media, and that elite is trying to create a world government. 
in order to do so, be necessary of all to disarm the targeted population that would be subject to that government. National Guardsmen and State Police are called in to help restore order in what became known as the Battle of Seattle. The major media focused on the chaos and the mob's demands. Let them go! Yet they carefully avoided raising the issue as to how the groups on the street were organized and funded, or whether their leaders might have a hidden agenda. Instead, the media portrays such demonstrations as natural outpourings of genuine grassroots concern. We're just normal people who are tired of the exploitation of multinational corporations. Again, for those who orchestrate these events, it's the illusion that counts. The familiar media melodrama of the anti-globalization movement that we have seen in Seattle and some of the other protest venues is really a classic example of bracketing an issue with false alternatives because we're told that these are people who oppose the global agenda. After all, they're called anti-globalization activists. Well, what is it that they oppose? They don't oppose global government. They believe that there is too much free market capitalism in the world and that government at a global level has to be more assertive in imposing controls over the free exchange of goods and services. But you see that both of these sides are really calling for empowering the United Nations. The media further stage manages the illusion of conflict by promoting those designated as the official opposition. I'm going to focus on what the other side says and what you say back. Media-appointed spokesperson for the anti-WTO forces is Laurie Wallach. She heads up Global Trade Watch. Ignored by the media is the fact that Wallach's organization receives funding from the Ford Foundation, which is closely tied to the CFR. The friendly relationship between Wallach and the CFR agenda was made clear in Foreign Policy magazine, a major conduit for CFR thinking. This issue signals media leaders that Laurie Wallach should be represented as an expert on trade issues. By ensuring that only false opposition is offered to his revolutionary agenda, the CFR internationalists can't lose. media employs many deceptions to support the drive for global power. These deceptions go far beyond altering or omitting a few facts. The insiders count on the immensity of their illusions to prevent any sizable segment of the American public from catching on to their real motivation. 
CEO of the John Birch Society, G. Vance Smith. A basic objective of the insiders, and has been from the beginning, has been to break the will to resist. To convince through their propaganda that there's uh, no hope, uh, that it's inevitable, that moving towards a, a one world government, a one world court system, a one world military, a one world currency, all of that is, is just inevitable. And they present it in a way that, again, convinces, uh, try, they try to convince that the, that, it's, that the momentum is so great that it cannot be stopped. But more than once, the insider's momentum has been stopped. As Clinton began his second term, he chose veteran CFR member W. Anthony Lake for the highly sensitive post of director of the CIA. But Senate approval would be required first. The establishment news quickly filled its editorial pages with glowing endorsements from fellow CFR members. But many issues in Lake's background should have raised doubts about his suitability for the top intelligence post. Of greatest concern was Lake's long history of associations with groups hostile to American national security. A group of political watchdogs supplied key senators with documentation, and the New American magazine helped mobilize public pressure for a thorough investigation. Embarrassed by the challenge to its leadership, the establishment media attempted to smear the organization, leading the demand for the investigation. Lake is a victim of the far right, the New York Times charged. In an error-ridden article in the New American, a John Birch periodical, William F. Jasper dissected Mr. Lake's resume and found a pattern of anti-Americanism. He referred to my article as an error-ridden article, yet he cited not one error in the whole article, and it was clearly a uh, calculated to be a, a major defense and promo piece for Anthony Lake. Despite strong media support for his nomination, Lake withdrew rather than subject himself to serious Senate scrutiny. Victories such as Lake's withdrawal are but part of the solution for reversing the establishment's momentum. To escape ongoing media deceptions, the public must first have a source of regular, reliable information. Many concerned Americans look to the new American. The magazine has a reputation for calling the shots years and sometimes decades ahead of mainstream media. Case in point, author William F. Jasper examines Osama bin Laden three years before the attack on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. Jasper's report exposes the cover-up that prevents America from winning the war on terrorism. The New American reveals how Washington policymakers had earlier helped build Saddam Hussein's war machine and are using the monster they created as a pretext to build UN power. Newsweek covered some of this ground, although not until 10 years later. To know what's going on isn't going to help a darn bit unless we do something with what we know. And again, an individual, even well informed, it can't stop this thing by himself. So the purpose of our educational efforts is to get thousands and tens and tens of thousands of individuals informed so that they can link arms and they can collectively 
have a voice that will resonate even as great as the billions of dollars uh, resonate through the media. Truth will penetrate all of that. Truth. It's the foundation upon which freedom is built. And it's one of the strongest weapons against the revolutionary agenda behind the big news. You don't have anything to worry about. The third time I've said that. I'll probably say it three more times. See, in my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in, to kind of catapult the propaganda. In the heart of this great city, we saw tragedy arrive on a quiet morning, September the 11th. September 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 11th. Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Saddam. 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 Saddam Hussein. War and danger. Continuing danger. Hour of danger. Very, very dangerous world. A grave new threat. Horrific acts of atrocity. Murderous regimes dedicating to killing us. Tyranny and terror. Slaughtered thousands. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons of mass destruction. Weapons programs. The deadliest of weapons. Terrible weapons. Nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons. Poison gas. Torture chambers. Mass graves. Deadly technologies. Radical ideology of hate. Terror a threat. Terror. 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 War on terrorism. War against terrorism. Global war on terror. Global terrorism. 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 Terror
terrorist, 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 terrorist. Terrorism is a tactic. You can't have a war against a tactic. It's deliberately, it's deliberately vague and non-definable in order to justify and permit perpetual war anywhere and under any circumstances. Don't forget, the Iraqis and Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with any terrorist attack against us, including that on 9-11. Special interests and the demented philosophy of conquest have driven most wars throughout all of history. Rarely has the cause of liberty, as it was in our own revolution, been the driving force. In recent decades, our policies have been driven by neoconservative empire radicalism, profiteering in the military-industrial complex, misplaced do-good internationalism, mercantilistic notions regarding the need to control natural resources, and blind loyalty to various governments in the Middle East. For all the misinformation given the American people to justify our invasion, such as our need for national security, enforcing UN resolutions, removing a dictator, establishing a democracy, protecting our oil, the argument has been reduced to this. If we leave now, Iraq will be left in a mess, implying the implausible that if we stay, it won't be a mess. Since it could go badly when we leave, that blame must be placed on those who took us there, not on those of us who now insist that Americans no longer need be killed or maimed and that Americans no longer need to kill any more Iraq. With so um, uh, rather than uh, uh, it's a bit of <laughs> we've we, um. now on BBC Three, Greg Palast investigates why this family has been associated with so many scandals, the Bush family fortunes. Bush family, wealthy, powerful, by any measure, a true dynasty. For generations, the Bushes were a hidden force in American finance and politics. Now, they've come out from the shadows. How have they claimed their place at the top of the pyramid of power? Bushes have given America two presidents, and there may be more on the horizon. Do they have the right stuff, or just the right name? Our current president had a name that didn't end with Bush. Would he be in the Oval Office today? No, he would not. I don't see how. No, he would still be hanging out at country clubs. Absolutely not. He's a Bush, and he's in the White House because he's a Bush. No way in hell. The fix was in. And that's the only reason he's in the position he's in. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. He's sworn to lead the world's last superpower. In his hands, delicate intricacies of international relations. 
I can't name the general. And then it's general. And the prime minister of India? Uh, the new prime minister of India is uh, uh, no. A commanding post where words can move armies. A major uh, U.S. daily story about uh, subliminal messages. I don't think we need to be subliminal. It's of course common to say George W. Bush is you know dumber than a box of rocks, uh, but that misses the point about who George W. is. Uh, yes, he doesn't have the brain muscle uh, to do any heavy lifting, that's clear. But at the same time, uh, that's not his purpose. I can hear you, the rest of the world, the world hears you, and the people... What is his purpose, the real agenda? September 11 would transform his presidency and the president's image from good old boy to an Abe Lincoln, protector of the American Republic. In the days, really the minutes, before 9-11 erupted, his popularity was headed south. He was seen as an absentee president and people were challenging his intellect. All of that was welling and coursing around in the, the, the weeks building up to 9-11 and all of it was promptly forgotten. It's that real strong leadership that comes through. And um, uh, people just always recognize that he was a natural leader. He is an, an honest, equitable, hardworking man. And that's why we've supported him unequivocally. Um, and I think he's doing a fabulous job. After the September 11 attack, his popularity soared and few were willing to ask questions about how he arrived at the pinnacle. I've been tracking the Bushes for years in politics, power, profits. These guys are the grandmasters of the game. I'm still on their trail. Texas, Florida, Washington. What drives these powerful men? And where are they driving us? It's important for people in the world to hear that should I threaten our national security interests, there will be reprisal. Victory in Iraq cements George W. Bush's image as heroic warrior. An image painted forever in the public's mind by this landing on the deck of the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln. The president makes much of his days as a fighter pilot at the time of the Vietnam War. Because of you, our nation is more secure. Because of you, the tyrant has fallen and Iraq is free. Did you see him landing the jet on the Abe Lincoln? I thought that was one of the neatest things yeah. I had ever seen. And watching all of the soldiers on that deck with their commander-in-chief and then having him weighed in and having the, just seeing that interaction, I just thought that was, that was fabulous. 
It was a cheap political stunt. It was not his airplane, it was the taxpayer's airplane. Uh, they had to get the aircraft carrier to turn around so that they would get the proper view that they wanted for the cameras of Bush landing and standing before the uh, brave troops who had indeed uh, put their lives at risk. George W. has never put his life at risk, not during the Vietnam period. Uh, his kids were not at risk in the Iraqi war. This was Bush political operatives using the U.S. military uh, to try to advance Bush's political career. Here's this politician who didn't have the, you know, the guts to go do it himself, go out and put on our uniform and go out on our aircraft carrier and grandstand as if he's some type of hero. And I don't think he's a hero, I think he's a phony. Nineteen sixty-eight, Vietnam. Young Americans by the thousands were drafted and sent to the jungles for a war without glory. Even the privileged at George Bush's Ivy League college faced the war draft. And in dorm rooms, discussion turned to the decision to fight or flee. I met with the president's Yale roommates on their way to lunch at the White House with their old friend. Oh boy, a long time ago. That's uh, the president. Me, haven't changed a bit. That's Robert Dieter. Wow. All very accomplished golfers, as you can see. And how come you don't wear a hat? I don't know. I just don't wear a hat. I want to look different. I'm always amazed at what I see on the television. Uh, that persona and the public one and the scripted one, as opposed to the one that we knew in college and know now, where he's uh, he's a very down to earth, relaxed, witty, funny guy. So did, did you talk with your roommate about the war in Vietnam being uh, drafted? I think so, yeah, as I, as I remember it. The military choice was something that uh, all of us at that point were going to have to face in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Did you sign up or did your number come up in the lottery for the draft? No, I was just planning to, to uh, enlist because at that time it, uh, the, um, it was just inevitable that you were going to get drafted. Hey, this is Bob Reddy with your National Guard Hope. And I want to tell you that the story of today's Army and Air National Guard is something all Americans can be proud of. What Bob Hope doesn't mention is that getting into the Guard is a way to get out of Vietnam. With just 12 days to go before he became subject to the draft, George Bush applies for the Air Guard. Problem for George was there were 100,000 would-be draft dodgers queued up ahead of him. For George W. Bush to get into the Texas Air Guard, safest unit in the military, he had to take a test. And he scored out of a possible 125, just one point above too dumb to fly. But that didn't stop young George from getting that plum position in the cockpit. Some folks have referred to it as a champagne unit because if you examine uh, exactly who was in that unit, it seemed to have a higher number of uh, very close friends of George W. Bush, uh, who really lived in the same neighborhood, attended the same schools, the same private schools, and frankly, very well-heeled, very affluent, many heirs to oil fortunes, or frankly, um, powerful politicians. To find out how George Bush got the cushy job of defending Houston, Texas from Viet Cong attack, I spoke with a former Air Guard Lieutenant Colonel, Bill Burkett. Do you think George W. Bush may have gotten some special treatment? In that case, and in almost every case in dealing with the National Guard, treatment that I would not have received, treatment that other soldiers would not have received. He came into the National Guard under a special favor from the Lieutenant Governor's office. When there was a waiting list, he was put at the top of the list. Being able to have the United States government spend a million dollars 
teaching you to fly. Now that's pretty special treatment. And when you have an aptitude score of 25, and you have people that have scored much higher than that that have been on a waiting list for a period of time and you're automatically elevated to number one on the list, it would tell you that he got special treatment. Now does that mean that he effectively was able to get out of going to Vietnam and getting out of the draft? Oh sure, sure it does. 12 days prior to his student deferment uh, going out. Look, I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody. I got into the National Guard for one simple reason. I was scared to go to Vietnam. I'm honest. I'll tell people that. But let's be honest about this. Did he get out of going to, to Vietnam? Sure he did. It galls me. It literally galls me to see somebody who is a wannabe, an image man, stand and take an image and, and, and lace himself in a uniform and try to build that image for a political purpose or something other than something that's real. When a friend of mine died, when friends of mine died, they gave the ultimate sacrifice and they sat in a foxhole and they did so without a name. And their name is only remembered on the Vietnam War. There are 58,000 names on this piece of stone. Some volunteered. Most had no choice about going. But it seems that for a privileged few, there was a special route to safety. George W. Bush's birthday is July 6, 1946. Same as William H. White and 24 others. They went to Vietnam and didn't come back. sent there to defend our liberties and, and to find out that the politicians who sent myself and the other young men to put our lives into harm's way were working a personal selfish agenda instead of a national agenda is anathema to everything that we fought for and stood for and uh, it hurts me to this day to think that we would be manipulated or that they would abuse their authority and to stand on television in a suit in front of 14 waving American flags or on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier in a flight suit and be called a leader. The whole system has been turned on end. We have the weak leading the strong. I got my hands on a letter from someone who explained how the draft dodge fix was done. It says, George Bush leaped over thousands of young men, some of whom died in Vietnam. So I tracked down one of the guys named in the letter. He confessed to the whole thing. He said he made the call at the request of someone acting in the name of Congressman George Bush Sr. Not surprisingly, he wouldn't repeat the confession on camera. Mention of 
In 1950, a Connecticut Yankee named George Herbert Walker Bush Sr. arrived into town with money bags filled with a million dollars from his family to buy himself a piece of Texas. And he ended up with a whole enchilada. George Bush Sr. quickly parlayed the family's eastern banking wealth into Texas oil gushers. George Jr., with his military career at an end, decided to follow his father into the oil biz. That's when George met David Rosen, Midland oil field wildcatter, a guy who drills holes and takes his chances. So David, I understand there's some members of, uh, of the oil crowd here that are in a special club. Well, What's it called? okay, there, there's the Lucky Sperm Club. You know, those that were lucky enough to be born into a family with substantial resources. If you have access to capital through your family contacts, it's very easy to become successful in the oil business. So this is where it began for uh, our president in the oil business. That was where I first met George, when he had his company Arbusto. What does that mean? I believe Arbusto means small bush. This was George's card that he gave me. And it's really telling that uh, although his name was George Bush Jr., he quickly dropped the junior. And of course, it's George Bush, President Arbusto Energy. But Arbusto went busto, as did many of his other oil ventures. So George Jr. switched to the family's other line of work, politics. Hey, I'm George Bush, running for the Congress. I'm George Bush, nice to Let's make it official. I'm a candidate for governor of Texas. By 1995, George W. is living here in the Texas White House. He's governor of the Lone Star State but he wants the bigger house. It's an ambition that's in his blood. But he'd have to know that in a presidential campaign, his war record would come under the microscope. I've been scrutinized as the son of the president. I scrutinized when I ran for governor in 1994, and I'm darn sure being scrutinized now. The scrutiny would center on his air guard war record, specifically, did he go AWOL when he was supposed to be on duty at an air base in Alabama? Some Vietnam vets believed he was missing in action. We're here today to offer a thousand dollar reward to anybody who bring tangible evidence to us, records showing us that he attended guard duty while he was here in Alabama. No one's claimed the reward. So where was George? I think you ought to listen to what the general said, who was in charge of my unit, and he said there was no preferential treatment given. I took a walk just down the road from the governor's mansion to the building where you'll find all the files on soldiers and airmen.
Camp Mabry, HQ of the Texas National Guard. This is where the Vietnam War records of fighter pilot George W. Bush were supposed to be kept. But someone seems to have tampered with them. Who did it? And how did they cover it up? This is 28 years of a military career, all boiled down to paper. This is the retirement point. But Bush's military records are oddly incomplete. What happened to those papers? Lieutenant Colonel Burkett was working the Air Guard headquarters at Camp Mabry, talking with the general, when a telephone call came in from Governor Bush's people. They wanted to assemble all of the governor's files. They wanted to make sure there was nothing in there that would embarrass the governor. That's as, that's as accurate as I can put it. And you heard that off the yes. voice box yourself? Yes. yes. Now, they wouldn't go along with a call from a politician and actually clean the files, would they? Yes. They would? Yes. Did they? Yes. And there were several documents, and I saw that they had George W. Bush's name at the top of them. And this was a, a bin that was about to be shredded. A uh, specific document that I do remember was a pay document. Well, a what? second specific document that I remember was a retirement points document. That, in fact, might explain uh, some tremendous gaps in the record. It makes no sense. This was during the Vietnam War, yes. And uh, did he show up for training? There's no documentation at all that he showed up. Are you saying that the president may have been AWOL, taken off during the war? If you look at the definition of absent without leave, which is used to court-martial individuals, he met those ramifications of those charges. sunshine state. Something smells rotten here and they ain't the orange juice. The Bush family takes back the White House when Florida goes for George W. over Al Gore by a margin thin as the ace of spades, just 537 votes. How convenient that the team in charge of this questionable little count is handpicked by a governor named Jeb Bush. I would like to introduce to you a man of vision, of principle, my brother, George W. Bush, the next president of the United States. It's a political issue. It's time for new leadership in Washington, D.C. Florida is a swing state. The result here was expected to decide whether the Republicans or the Democrats took the White House. It's going to be a close race, very close race, yeah, it's hard to tell, flip the coin. I believe America is ready for a new beginning. <laughs> It's almost 5.30 a.m. 
Texas time, and George W. Bush is still asleep, and I'm still speaking to people here in Florida. The pollsters call Florida as Al Gore's state, but for some reason, George W. thinks otherwise. What does he know? I don't believe uh, I don't believe that some of these states uh, that they've called, like Florida, we, I just don't believe that I don't believe we've got enough evidence to be able to call the state. We're doing better than we thought, and um, but I feel I feel fine. But America didn't feel fine. The machine ballot count was a shambles. So county officials began a laborious recount by hand. I think they should just re-elect, start it all over again. Council the whole deal that's went on now, and let's vote again. But with Bush's vote margin evaporating, Governor Jeb's officials halt the recount, saving the election for Bush. Then a tipster told me to check out some funny business. Thousands of black voters were turned away from the voting booth because they were labeled as convicted criminals. But were they? I met with Willie Steen, who like over 90,000 others was tagged a criminal not allowed to vote because Jeb Bush's officials said he was a felon. So Willie, fess up. Are you a criminal? No. No criminal at all. Never been convicted of any crime. But they had you down as a felon, a serious convicted criminal. Yes, they did, but not me. Wrong person. I've never been arrested in my life, you know. Was in the military for four years. Got out of the military, been in the medical field ever since. I mean, you can't even work for a hospital being a convicted felon. If you, in error, remove even one person from the voter rolls, it's of tremendous significance. We found errors. We were very uncomfortable with the matches on the list. The matches uh, that the state considered a match was not something that we necessarily considered a match. Sometimes the race and even the gender was not a match. Um, we were not comfortable. How did you feel internally when they said you're a criminal? Well, for one, I was upset. You know, um, I was ashamed. You know, what? 40 people around and it made me feel real bad. Do you feel that they were, that it was particularly bad for African Americans? I, I really feel that it was bad, you know, for, for African Americans, but hey, you know, what can we do sometimes? You know, what can we do? Using some legal snooping techniques, I was able to get into Florida's computers and cracked open the files that named Willie Steen and other black voters as potential criminals. Thomas Alvin Cooper is convicted in Ohio. He's a white guy. Thomas Cooper of Florida loses his vote. He's a black guy, and he's listed for a date of conviction of his felony, January 30th, 2007. Well, look at that. All it is is a people who have names similar to someone who's been convicted somewhere in the United States of a crime. 95% of them 
are completely innocent, should never have lost their vote. Over half of them are black. Almost every black person voted for Al Gore. The citadel of Florida democracy. Way up there, the office of Governor Jeb Bush and his elections director. This is it. This is where the little caper was carried out. The theft of the American presidency. All those innocent black voters, thousands who lost their vote. Was it just a coincidence? I would have bought that until a little birdie dropped this on my desk. And it would prove to me that the election was signed, sealed, and delivered months before anyone entered a voting booth. This document, marked secret, is the contract between the state of Florida and DBT Choice Point. The company was paid millions to compile lists of criminals who should be barred from voting and then verify that those lists were correct. But Florida state officials told Choice Point not to bother verifying lists despite Choice Point warnings that it could mean thousands of innocent people would end up losing their vote. The documents I've discovered implicate Jeb Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, and this man, Clayton Roberts, Director of the Department of Elections. Roberts agreed to be interviewed, but was uncomfortable when I produced the $4 million contract. We have a statute that says we have to have a private company to do this. We put it out for bed. They got the bed. And I think I'm done with this interview. Wait, well, let me just, add, let me just show you the contract, if I could, Mr. Roberts. Wait. It says here, right in the contract, that the verification is supposed to be done by DBT, that you paid them $4 million. Don't you, it, it could look to other people, don't you think that you paid $4 million to purchase this election for the Republican Party? 95% wrong on the felon list? Mr. Roberts, could you just please answer the question regarding the contract? In accordance with the laws of the state of Florida, I hereby declare Governor George W. Bush the winner of Florida's 25 electoral votes for the President of the United States. Catherine Harris was Clayton Roberts' boss, and her boss was Jeb Bush. But she also happened to be chairwoman of the Bush for President campaign and successfully delivered W a victory by just 537 votes. Now that the votes are counted, it is time for the votes to count. I wish to point out that our American democracy has triumphed once again. God bless America. To the corporations that put him into the White House, George W. Bush was an investment that paid off big time. Take that company that came up with the phony felon list, Choice Point. They got it 95% wrong, but they didn't get the boot. They got the big 
no-bid contracts, including one for $67 million to help Bush fight his war on terror. And they weren't the only company involved in Bush's election to hit the White House jackpot. George W. Bush, uh, as governor and now as president, is an absolute corporate wet dream. Jim Hightower, once the commissioner of agriculture for the state of Texas, is now a radio columnist. From inside government and out, he's tracked the Bush family's mix of politics and payouts for years. I'd trust a wolf to guard my last pork chop before I'd trust the Bushites to guard my liberties. Any fantasy that the boss of a major corporation has can come true uh, if you just put in uh, some money uh, into Bush's personal or political pockets. Looks powerful. Looks invincible. In fact, it's the gravestone here in Houston of what was the largest power corporation on this planet, Enron. Here's something that caught my eye. Bush takes office. Just three days later, he signs an executive order that raises the price of electricity in California. Nearly bankrupts that state, but earns these guys billions. Now, why would our president do that? to each other and to those who are loyal to them. They stand and deliver for those who put money into their politics or into their personal accounts. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Enron puts in a few hundred thousand dollars into Bush's presidential campaign. In the first five or six months of the administration, it reaps hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in personal benefit. Here's Ken Lay, who's the CEO of Enron. He delivered hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Bush campaign. Craig McDonald heads Texans for Public Justice. This is the power team. They hit the long ball and they can put you all the way in the White House. The payback process is policy. It's appointments and policy. Ken Lay, Enron, the oil cronies got exactly what they wanted out of the Bush administration. Even before he takes the presidential oath, Bush forms a secret task force, including Enron's Ken Lay, to rewrite America's environmental and energy laws. He put the very people who funded him in the room to devise a clean air policy. They wrote the policy, he enacted the policy, and the policy was strictly voluntary. Did nothing to clean up the air, yet he touted it as a major accomplishment. Instead of the government telling utilities where and how to cut pollution, we will give them a firm deadline and let them find the most innovative ways to meet it. These same funders were sick and tired of trying to play by the environmental rules and regulations. George Bush gave them an environmental clean air policy uh, that any corporation would lust after. Now, 
how proud we are to be the number one state in the country in air pollution. They took the clean air and the environmental cops off the beat. Ken Lay got almost total, complete energy deregulation out of George Bush. <laughs> what did the Bush administration do? It refused to impose price controls to put a cap on those utility prices, meaning company could, like Enron could set its own prices to consumers. Show me the money. Show me the money. He was delivering a favor and a policy that the donors who put him in that office wanted. Consumers in California were being stiffed, and Enron was raking in hundreds of millions of dollars uh, uh, during that period uh, in corrupt profits. Uh, so that's a pretty good payback. But Enron squandered their California windfall in a series of spectacular frauds, which imploded, leaving thousands jobless and pensioners bankrupt. Now, George tried to downplay his links with Enron's Ken Lay and other corrupt bosses. By far, the vast majority of CEOs in America are good, honorable, honest people. In the corporate world, sometimes things aren't exactly black and white when it comes to accounting procedures. And the SEC's job is to, re is to, is to look and is to determine whether or not, uh, whether or not, uh, uh, whether or not the decision by the auditors was the appropriate decision. <laughs> Ken Lay, uh, whom George W. fondly called Kenny Boy, was the major campaign contributor to George W. Bush, and they exchanged Christmas cards with each other. Uh, Ken Lay was very personal, uh, very close uh, with the Bush family. I do know that uh, uh, Mr. Lay came to the White House in, early in my administration, along with, uh, I think, 20 other business leaders to discuss the state of the economy. It was just kind of a general discussion. I have not met with him personally. I've gotten my hands on a video of an Enron retirement party for one of Ken Lay's colleagues. It stars both Presidents Bush more than happy to say a few encouraging words for their family's top campaign contributors. You have been fantastic to the Bush family. I don't think anybody did more than you did to support George. Don't leave Texas. You're too good a man. I appreciate your service to our great state. I look forward to working with you to make Texas a better place. Good luck in anything you do. You're a good Texan. Capitol Hill, Austin, Texas. It's here where George W. made the deals that got him into the White House and where he learned his own particular brand of politics, Texas style. When the deals go down, Texas gentlemen sometimes don't like to get their hands dirty with the details. For that, they have hired guns, the political lobbyists. Across from the Capitol, I found one of Ken Lay's former lobbyists, Andrea McWilliams. She and her husband sell their political connections to the Texas corporate elite. They also rounded up over $100,000 in contributions for George W. Bush's presidential campaign. Every person in the United States could meet President Bush, 
they would understand why we have the level of support personally that we do for the president. He is an, an honest, equitable, hard-working man, and that's why we've supported him unequivocally. Um, and I think he's doing a fabulous job. I crossed the hall to meet another lobbyist. Nick Kroll invited me into the back room to show me a different view of the influence game. Nice to see you. Yeah, hey, great. Come on in. Yeah, great. Want a cocktail? Uh, yeah. Why not? <laughs> okay. Well, we don't want you to speak ill of us. All right. Cheers. Mmm. Damn fine whiskey. Now, do you ever use that as a mechanism for uh, getting what you want in the Always. legislature? The second most important, well, third most important tool in politics. Well, what are the others? Guns and what? Money's probably number one, but whiskey's a close second. What's third? Love, I guess. <laughs> Get our lobby tools ready. <laughs> Next point. You have a few enemies here? Sure. I'm a minority. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> An endangered species. Huh? That's right. The simple process of getting things done in Texas, how important is cash in getting legislation through? Well, it's the fuel of politics. I mean, that's how you get people that identify with your views elected. It is probably unseemly in many ways because Texas, unlike a lot of, of places, there's no limit. If you're running for a house seat, I could give you a hundred, two hundred. I could give you as much hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, much money as I want, and obviously that's going to have some effect on how you treat me. Say, come on now, you are representing guys like Enron. Uh, You're saying that these companies make that type of investment and don't expect a return. I think some of the donors that, that you're speaking of. Um, and, and there's a long list that have traditionally given to what they feel like are business-friendly candidates. And, and those donors don't necessarily uh, look for any sort of quid pro quo other than uh, the candidate's ideology that they're supporting they know will help, uh, help change the, the business environment or the climate for the better. What I would say about President Bush is that there, there is no way giving to someone like him is going to influence his decision. There's no quid pro quo. Sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> so this is kind of the wild west of campaign contributions? It is the wild west. Is this a 45? Then? I don't know if there are any other states that have this uh, liberal... Uh, campaign contributions, unlimited. You can give a million if you want to give a million, or you can give whatever. There's the old saying, money talks and bullshit walks. And money talks very politely to the Bush family. Not just the campaign cash for George W. and Brother Jeb. There was the billion dollars the U.S. Treasury pumped into Brother Neil's bank, Silverado. And there's Brother Marvin. His investment funds are fattening on contracts for the war on terror. And Poppy, Bush Sr., became the first ex-president to trade his Oval Office connections for cash. The Bushes are like other American dynasties. The, the Kennedys, the, the Rockefellers. They made their millions and bought their way into political office. The Bushes do the same, but with a twist. 
They've taken the game to a whole other level. See, the money gets them office, then the office gets them even more money. Call it the Bush cycle. And it's still rolling along. I went to speak to a man who'd witnessed the Bush family's uncanny ability to turn government service into cash. He'd occupied an inside seat in Washington's spook world during the Reagan-Bush administration. Former National Security Agency man, Wayne Madsen. It's the nature of the Bush families, particularly Bush Sr., to use um, contacts made from government service, head of the CIA, vice president, president of the United States, to basically call in favors later on. Bush Sr. and other former intelligence and political honchos have joined the private Carlyle Group, whose main work is selling arms to the U.S. government and a few dictatorships. Carlisle uses Senior Bush to make entrees to various government offices around the world, to presidents and prime ministers and kings, sheikhs, emirs, sultans, what have you. But what Bush Senior gets in return is he's part of these lucrative contracts, and he uses his connections to funnel the money into the Bush family coffers, which fun finds its way into the Bush campaign machine. In 1988, George Bush Sr. won the presidency. At this time, a contract was awarded by the government of Bahrain to drill for oil in the Persian Gulf. Surprisingly, it went to a small-time company, Harkin Energy, with no experience whatsoever in offshore drilling. I'm a Shakuchal, singing the good song of freedom. They've got no pride. They interrupt our grieving. Teardrops dropping for the pain of the world. I asked investigative reporter Pete Bruton, then with the Houston Chronicle, how this happened. Harkin Oil in Texas is an offshore contract to drill in the Persian Gulf. It was a big mystery to everyone. All the analysts, everybody said, how did this happen? Nobody understood why it happened. Why didn't Amoco, why didn't Texaco, Mobil, Exxon, BP, why didn't they get the contract? They had the capital. Harkin didn't have any capital. And I found out it was because George W. Bush, the president's son, and our future president, was on the board of directors. and his operation. It's hot. Well, yeah, it'll be over 100 today. Over 100. Whew. Look at that. That's one big horsey. 
Smells like Texas too. Smells like money to me. Harkin Oil will suddenly get this contract to drill offshore from the government of Bahrain, from the Arabs. They beat out Amoco Oil. Is that a little unusual? Well, it's awfully unusual for a small company to get an offshore concession like that. You think maybe that they uh, picked up the contract because George W.'s father was president of the free world? It certainly didn't hurt. George W. had a string of oil companies which failed to find much oil, but somehow managed to make him a millionaire. Now, how did that happen? He ended up with millions, four companies that uh, got quite some large investments. Uh, you know about that? No. I think he made his money with his name and being able to keep moving and keep having people put money into his businesses. So where did this money come from? Do you have any idea? Well, my impression is that the money he got was out-of-town money and that had he been successful in the oil business, he'd still be in it. George Bush's oil companies kept punching dry holes but he always found new investors. Some people have guardian angels. George W. seemed to have guardian sheikhs. Funding seemed to come from the Gulf, Saudi Arabia in particular. The question was, who were they? And did they expect something in return? Were the Bushes too close to the Saudis to see the dangers emerging from that nation? America's attacked by 15 Saudi hijackers under the direction of a Saudi named Bin Laden. I couldn't find a shred of evidence that George Bush knew about the September 11th attack coming. But why didn't our intelligence agencies know? This document is marked secret and WF, which means it walked its way out of the Washington Bureau of the FBI. It indicates that before the attack of September 11th, agents had wanted to question two members of a very powerful family for their connections to a suspected terrorist organization, Omar and Abdullah bin Laden. But the agents weren't allowed to. Now, what makes this family so special that they're protected from investigation? To find out about the bin Laden's business background in America, I met with Bill White. During the Vietnam War years, Bill was a real fighter pilot. Later, he went into business with a mysterious figure, James R. Bath, who managed the U.S. funds of a powerful Saudi family. I met many times with uh, Salman bin Laden, Osama bin Laden's older brother, both in business settings and in social settings. Bath had bought a house. We had parties there where a lot of the dignitaries and big business bigwigs would party with the Arabs. So it was like la-la land. These guys drove around in limousines with suitcases full of cash. It was just uh, an amazing... <laughs> Are you sure Bath was an agent for the Bin Laden family? I'm sure, you know, beyond a doubt. Bath actually presented me with a copy of a trust agreement, a one-page trust agreement that was signed in 1976 that appointed him as sole and exclusive representative for the Saudi Bin Laden family in the United States of America and all their business ventures. 
he also invested in one of his uh, fellow pilots' ventures in the oil business. Oh, that's right, George Bush Jr. and our Busto. That's correct. Do you know about that? Well, I know about it because Jim and I had to provide our personal financials to our lenders. And so I looked at his personal financial and they're you know, plain as day. It said, you know, our Busto, $79,000, $25,000, or Busto, $80,000, $25,000. So Bush's oil capital coming from Bath, and Bath's money coming apparently from the Bin Ladens. What's going on here? The money that Bath put into our Busto was nothing but an extension of this quid pro quo relationship between the Saudi royal family and the Bushes. The Saudi royal family was definitely afraid of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the radical Islamic movement. And so at that point in time, they went to the Bushes and said, look, protect us from the Ayatollah and these radical fundamentalists and we'll give you whatever you want for your campaigns and to fund your your kids business interests to fight your secret wars there are other connections between the bushes and the saudis carlisle group which hired both george bush jr and senior received major funds and work from saudi royals and the bin laden family now we know not all of them are terrorists but the question is whether the dazzle of golf money blinded the Bushes to real threats. I met with Stephen Push, whose wife Lisa was one of the 3,000 people who died on September 11. He's a spokesman for the victims' families. They have been struggling to open government files on Saudi involvement in Al-Qaeda. Do you feel that the government is doing all they can to fully investigate what happened? It's been very difficult. The Bush administration originally opposed the idea of doing any kind of investigation whatsoever. One thing that the joint 9-11 inquiry has had difficulty getting declassified is information about Saudi Arabia. And I suspect that that may be part of the, part of the reason why the Bush administration is reluctant to fully disclose uh, what they did prior to 9-11 because even after 9-11 they've maintained a very close relationship with Saudi Arabia and that may be playing some role or maybe coloring the president's judgment in how he's dealing with the problem of Saudi cooperation on terrorism. Were the Saudis before September 11 given special treatment shielded from investigation into royal funding of terrorist fronts? For some answers I arranged to meet with Ron Motley the world's richest lawyer. He beat the tobacco companies and won billions. Now he's using his winnings to fund an international intelligence network to find out who funded the terrorists. Saudis, before September 11th, mm -hmm. do you think that they were given kind of a free ride, given a little extra slack about funding terrorism? I believe that. Evidence has been uncovered that in uh, the early summer of 2001, several FBI agents who were, who were tasked with um, uh, trying to find out how Al-Qaeda was getting its money uh, were shut down. So pressure was taken off the Saudis suspected of backing Osama bin Laden before September 11. Motley represents victims of the attack. I asked him if the Bush administration had gone easy on other bin Laden family members. 
how come airlines were allowed to take the bin Laden family out of the United States and away from being interrogated by the FBI, number one. Number two, we obtained from the Bosnian intelligence services, Sarajevo, a copy of what's called the Golden Chain, which lists the, they listed, Al-Qaeda listed, their most generous contributors, and it included the bin Laden family. The Golden Chain document is evidence that in the early days, some members of the Bin Laden family were funding Al-Qaeda operations in the Balkans. That document was seized by the FBI and the Bosnian police, and the Supreme Court of Bosnia has authenticated the document. What does this administration have to fear about a full investigation of terrorism? I don't know that they do, but maybe uh, they're concerned that some of their friends um, or, or some strategic interest might be compromised or revealed to have been sponsors of terrorism. money and you come back to this oil drilling it funding it controlling it now this has really been the story of two dynasties the Bushes but also the Saudis including the bin Ladens that backed them war peace terror war on terror it's all in the family's business when the business of the family is politics and the politics of the family is business any measure, a true dynasty. For generations, the Bushes were a hidden force in American finance and politics. Now, they've come out from the shadows. How have they claimed their place at the top of the pyramid of power? Bushes have given America two presidents, and there may be more on the horizon. Do they have the right stuff, or just the right name? Our current president had a name that didn't end with Bush. Would he be in the Oval Office today? No, he would not. I don't see how. No, he would still be hanging out at country clubs. Absolutely not. 
He's a Bush, and he's in the White House because he's a Bush. No way in hell. The fix was in, and that's the only reason he's in the position he's in. I, George Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. He's sworn to lead the world's last superpower in his hands, delicate intricacies of international relations. I can't name the general. Eight minutes. General. And the Prime Minister of India? Uh, the new Prime Minister of India is, uh, uh, no. A commanding post where words can move armies. A major uh, U.S. daily story about uh, subliminal messages. I don't think we need to be subliminal. It's, of course, common to say George W. Bush is, you know, dumber than a box of rocks. Uh, but that misses the point about who George W. is. Uh, yes, he doesn't have the brain muscle uh, to do any heavy lifting. That's clear. But at the same time, uh, that's not his purpose. I can hear you. The rest of the world. What is his purpose, the real agenda? And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. September 11 would transform his presidency and the president's image from good old boy to an Abe Lincoln, protector of the American Republic. In the days, really the minutes, before 9-11 erupted, his popularity was headed south. He was seen as an absentee president, and people were challenging uh, his uh, intellect. All of that was welling and coursing around in the, the, the weeks building up to 9-11, and all of it was promptly forgotten. It's that real strong leadership that comes through, and um, uh, people just always recognize that he was a natural leader. He is an, an honest, equitable, hard-working man, and that's why we've supported him unequivocally. Um, and I think he's doing a fabulous job. After the September 11 attack, his popularity soared, and few were willing to ask questions about how he arrived at the pinnacle. I've been tracking the bushes for years. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.